You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I've got my co-host Eurosimos in the house as always. Um, uh, you know, we created this podcast specifically for truth seekers and so we can continue to explore our own journey in discovering the truth. And here we are 118 episodes later, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. And today we have the return of Ralph Ellis um, for the third time, one of, one of our most popular guests ever. His first two episodes blew people's minds on the real history of Jesus and also um, the truth about Adam and Eve. You can check those out, episode 49 and episode 63. And today we're talking all about the secrets and mysteries of the Great Pyramid, its connection to other megalithic structures around the world, how and why it was built, its its significance, and Ralph's own unique findings and discoveries, which are mind-blowing, which we highly implore you stay around till the later stages of this episode to find out. Um, This episode does contain a visual component. Ralph walks us through certain imagery. It's not absolutely necessary that you watch the video to grasp a deeper understanding of what Ralph's explaining. But if you're interested in going further, our episodes are hosted on our website at herefortheTruth.com. So we definitely invite you to go check out our website. And we have a comment section there too if you want to engage um, in any dialogue around this episode. Also on our Here for the Truth Telegram, you can engage there as well. Right before I bring uh, Ralph on, I just want to highlight our private membership community, Friends of the Truth. That's a key way in which you can support our platform if you enjoy what we're doing. We offer awesome value in Friends of the Truth. We do three calls a month with our members, live teachings. We bring previous podcast guests on to answer our members' questions specifically. And there's an awesome um, private Telegram community as well where we engage in dialogue around being a contemporary truth seeker, gardening, homesteading, lifestyle, family, human design, German new medicine, health, well-being. There's a meme zone too, lots of laughs and so much more. So if you're interested, I invite you to head to friendsofthetruth.co and learn more and you can sign up um, from there too. Thanks so much for your support. We appreciate it. Um, We love that we get to do this for a living and it's thanks to you listening to this right now. Please enjoy this episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. And today we have the return of the great Ralph Ellis. We've done two amazing episodes with Ralph already, one on the real history of Jesus and the biblical stories. That was episode 49. And we did another on um, the truth about Adam and Eve. And that was episode 63. For those listeners that aren't aware, Ralph um, is a historian. He's been researching biblical and Egyptian history for more than 40 years. He's someone who's independent from theological and educational establishments, and that allows him to tread where others do not dare. And through this independence as a historian, that Ralph has discovered so many new biblical and historical truths. Ralph, welcome back to Here for the Truth. Yeah, good to be back with you again. Um, Yes, I've just changed my pronoun again. I've become pastor this time, just for a change. (laughs) There you go. It's my preferred pronoun. Pastor, Pastor Ralph Ellis in the house. Sounds good. Today, Ralph, I think we'll be diving deep a little bit more specifically into um, the Great Pyramid and the pyramids of Egypt themselves. Um, So I guess for someone approaching this topic um, from a new lens, looking to discover deeper truths, um, how do we we begin this discussion? 
Well, I suppose we could look at the um, orthodox history of the pyramids just as a brief overview. I'm sure people know most of uh, this, but um, they were supposed idea. to have been built in the Old Kingdom some 4,500 years ago, roughly. Um, and they're supposed to be built for pharaohs, so they're supposed to be tombs. Um, and And right there, we can diverge from the classical uh, history of the pyramids because these were not tombs. Uh, no fair, no mummy has ever been found in a pyramid. Wow. So uh, that gives you a clue. Um, and none of these pyramids, none of these megalithic ones, as opposed to the later sort of mud brick ones and things of that nature, but none of these large megalithic pyramids have any inscriptions. Now, throughout pharaonic history, in all of the kingdoms, no pharaoh in his right mind would ever be buried in a tomb that did not glorify his name and have the Book of the Dead and all of the other standard accoutrements that you find in the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, for instance. Um, so we, we know they're not tombs. No pharaoh would be buried in a bare tomb. So they are not tombs. So if they're not tombs, then what are they? Well, I've established that they are more like cathedrals to the cosmos and cathedrals to mathematics because they are demonstrably mathematical. Um, and this is sort of known, um, but people don't they don't champion this very much because they like to stick within the classical interpretation of uh, pyramids. Um, so just in case people don't know, and this, this is well known, this is not from my research as such. Um, it, well, except for the last bit is. Um, the Great Pyramid is the copy of pi, and they've used 22 over 7 as being the uh, fractional equivalent of pi. And more than that, it's a uh, a description of the formula for a circle because it's 2 pi r. And if you use 2 pi r, then you will generate the exact size of that pyramid. Um, so the, the pyramid is 1,760 around the base in cubits and 280 high. And that's a 40 times copy of pi. And we'll come on to that. Um, the second can you, pyramid, can you, can you explain, yep. oh, I was gonna say real quickly, can you explain what a, a cubit is real quickly relative to maybe more? Yes, well, we had two cubits. We had the, um, profane, uh, cubit, which is about 45 centimeters, if I remember correctly. Um, and then we had the royal cubit, which I call the Thoth cubit, uh, to differentiate it from other royal cubits from other civilizations. So I call it the Thoth cubit, and uh, that is 52.4 centimeters in length. Um, so it's longer than the, the standard common cubit, and it's the cubit of the Israelites. So within the uh, Torah, it says that the cubit used to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant was the cubit and a hand breadth. And that is the royal cubit. That is okay. the Thoth cubit because the standard cubit is six hands and a royal cubit is seven hands. So it's a cubit and a hand breadth. Um, 
And that's sort of important because um, I've determined that the qubit being used was made for the Great Pyramid. So it wasn't a qubit that was in use beforehand. It was specifically made for this project, um, which is why in the qubit, you can divide it up into seven hands of four fingers. So you have 28 fingers um, to the qubit. And that reflects, of course, the height of the pyramid, which is 280 qubits high. And then the circumference of the pyramid is 1,760, um, which I don't know if you recognize that being in America, since you're still on the imperial system. It's a mi One uh, mile. Quick, quick. Yeah, it's a mile. Um, so the imperial mile is 1,760 yards, and the Great Pyramid is 1,760 cubits. It's the same measurement length. You're still using the pyramid measurement system in America even today. Um, mm. and, and for a good reason, because it's based on pi. Uh, it's also a fraction of the uh, surface of the Earth. Um, so the perimeter length around the pyramid, 1,760 cubits, is a half a nautical mile. And a nautical mile is, of course, um, a, a geographic measurement system. There's a better word than that. But anyway, um, a nautical mile is one minute of arc around the circumference of the Earth. Um, so it's 360 times 60 uh, is, yeah, I think that's correct. And the pyramid circumference is a half of that. So they're using a ge geographic uh, measurement system that is reflected in the actual diameter of the Earth. So um, when do you estimate that the pyramids were built? Ah, well, that's a different question entirely. Um, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to make the connection because through the use of pi, and obviously this far predates Pythagoras, Oh yeah, a long, long time before Pythagoras, they they knew all about Pythagoras theorems. Um, the, the we'll we'll go into that. So don't okay. let me forget about uh, when it was okay. built. But there's a there's a way of measuring it. Um, but yes, they they understood all of this long before Pythagoras. So the second pyramid is a three four five Pythagorean triangle. Shows that they understood the uh, Pythagorean theorem. Um, and this is you know thousands of years before before Pythagoras. Uh, the Red Pyramid, just down the road in Dashur, is a 20-21-29 Pythagorean triangle. And we know it's not just that it happened to be the right shape, although that's difficult to get because there are not many Pythagorean triangles that you can emulate or simulate. Uh, but the dimensions of the Red Pyramid are 200 by 210 by 290 cubits. Um, so you've only got to divide by 10, and you've got 20, 21, 29, the Pythagorean triangle. And that's a difficult Pythagorean, Pythagorean triangle to come across accidentally. You, you're not going to do it. Three, four, five triangle, you might come across that accidentally, but not the 20, 21, 29. So, yes, they fully understood the Pythagorean uh, measurement um, formulae, should I say. Um, 
And this gives us a clue as to, again, how we can differentiate ourselves from the standard um, descriptions of these pyramids. I was just wondering if I might do a quick um, screen share. So I I know a lot of your... Oh, it's it's disabled. You should have permission now. Okay. Uh, I know a lot of your um, listeners will not be able to see this, but you'll be able to see it, and then you can describe it if I miss anything out uh, that is pertinent. So that should be a pyramid coming up. That is the Bent Pyramid uh, down at Dashur. It's just south of the uh, Giza Plateau. Um, And you can see it's more or less complete. It's still got a lot of its um, uh, cladding stones still on. And it's a very large pyramid. It's megalithic. It's huge. Uh, But you'll notice it's got two angles. That's why it's known as the Bent Pyramid. Um, Mm. And they say, because they've got to try and explain this away, um, they say that they were going to build it uh, all of one angle, but they started to get some, it was too steep, and they started to get some cracking in it, and they thought they'd better reduce the angle for the top of the pyramid, and so the top of the pyramid has a different angle on it. That is the excuse, but the trouble is the um, archaeologists, Egyptologists, have no idea of mathematics, no idea of the esoterica that surround these pyramids. And they, so they've got no idea why we have these two angles. And uh, the reason is because, I'll just quickly stop share. Um, the reason is because the top of that pyramid is a copy of the red pyramid next door. So there are two megalithic pyramids right next door to each other in Dashur. Uh, One is the Red Pyramid, which is the one we've just talked about, which is 20, 21, 29 uh, Pythagorean Triangle. Um, And then we've got the Bent Pyramid. But the top of the Bent Pyramid has the same angle as the Red Pyramid next door. Now, that's a clue. So if you look at the actual measurements of the top portion of the Bent Pyramid, uh, you will come out with um, a smaller, as it were, pyramid on the top, which measures 110 by 115.5 by 159.5 cubits. And again, that won't mean anything because we've got a whole jumble of numbers there that are pretty meaningless. Mm -hmm. Um, wouldn't mean anything unless you're into the esoterica of the measurement systems of Giza, which we've just talked about, uh, which is that it's based upon pi. Um, And very quickly, uh, if you've got a system that's based on pi, it's based on 22 over 7. So that's the fraction you use for pi. And that's why you get in the imperial system, you get a furlong, which I presume you still use in horse racing in America. Uh-huh. The furlong mm-hmm. is 220 cubits, as it were, 10 times pi. Um, the um, chain, well, you don't play cricket over in America, do you? No. Anyway, in Australia, no, the, cricket, <laughs> the cricket pitch is 22 <laughs> yards. That is a chain because that is pi. It's 22 over 7. Uh, and then we get the rod, which is 5.5 yards. 
And that is a, is a rather stupid length to have as a measurement system. But of course, it's just a quarter of pi. 22 divided by 4 is 5.5. That's why in the imperial system, you get all of these strange measurement units. It's all based on pi, 22 over 7. Um, hmm. And so 5.5 is the smaller base unit that you use in the imperial measurement system. You either use yards or rods, uh, which is 5.5 um, yards. And they did exactly the same on the Giza Plateau. They were using 5.5 cubits as a measurement system. Okay, so now if we go back to the uh, Bent Pyramid, we saw that the um, little pyramid on the top of it was 110 by 115.5 by 159.5 cubits, which is utterly meaningless, unless you divide by 5.5. And then you get 20, 21, 29, the Pythagorean triangle. So what they've done with the Bent Pyramid is they've got a miniature copy of the Red Pyramid sitting on top of the Bent Pyramid. So mm. the, the, there was no problem with the construction of this pyramid. It wasn't cracking. It wasn't a change of heart. They didn't change the plans. It's got a smaller copy of the red pyramid sitting on top of the bent pyramid. This was all one big building project, which was, you know, pre-planned at the very, very beginning. And the ratio between the um, red pyramid and the little cap, as it were, on the top of the bent pyramid is 10 to 5.5. Because 5.5 is, is the, the standard. Yep. And the reason for this is that these other, you know, archaeologists have said they're just using the wrong number system, measurement systems, so they, oh, they yeah, can't yeah. come to these conclusions. Always. I mean, they, they measure it in feet. They measure it in yards. They measure it in meters. Um, you, you cannot see any of these coincidences if you measure these pyramids in the wrong units. You've got to be using the units that the original uh, designer designed these pyramids with, which is the cubit system and the hand and the, the finger system. Then you can see the um, nice round uh, whole numbers that come out of, you know, these measurements. Uh, and I think I'm pretty much one of the first people to have ever, ever done this because I've read a load of books about Egypt and uh, forever and a day, they're using imperial or metric um, measurements. And you cannot see what the designer was doing uh, if, if you used those units. So, yeah, there, there is a, a big divergence from, um, from classical Egyptology that these were most definitely mathematical pyramids. Uh, the designer was encoding math because, well, A, because mathematics is the universal language. Mathematics is the same anywhere on Earth, anywhere in the galaxy, anywhere in the, in, in the entire universe. Um, and so if you send those numbers out, you know, for instance, in a radio signal or something like that, then anyone across the whole universe will recognize those particular numbers. Because mathematics is, well, as far as we are aware, mathematics never changes from galaxy to galaxy. Um, it's the universal language. So you can talk down the centuries if you use mathematics. Languages might change. 
Um, accents will change, but mathematics will always stay true to its original form. So the designer is giving you a sense that there is more to be found in these monuments. The designer is saying, come look within, because I hold secrets. You found a couple of secrets, but there's bound to be more inside. And that mm. was the whole goal of these um, uh, Only because you've touched on it so many times. Who is this designer? Ah, yes. Well, yeah. we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might have to go to uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, to find that. Um, we'll talk maybe about that at the end because we do find some interesting uh, findings uh, at the end of this uh, um, research into the pyramids because it takes us on a <laughs> it takes us on a quest on a trek you know across the world because uh, the other thing these pyramids are are they um, they're cosmic you know they're looking out to the cosmos. They're giving us dates. They're giving us uh, seasons and dates of the year and um, millennia through the processional cycle, which we will talk about. So that is all encoded in these pyramids. And I also think that these pyramids are maps, and we'll come on to that as well, that they are um, megalithic maps, I call them. And, and the book that this comes from, um, I call the megalithic map. Uh, series. So that consists of Thoth, Architect of the Universe. That was the first book, which was 1996, I think, something like that. And then the second one, the follow-up to that was K2, Quest of the Gods. Um, and then I went on to doing all of my uh, theological research. So these are the two of the first books I ever wrote. Um, and they've stood the test of time because uh, no one's been able to poke any holes in them. So, you know, it's good, solid data. I'm not quoting other people again. That's not how I do my research. I don't quote. Um, I've still not read many of these classical uh, names that people always quote regarding the pyramids. Um, I just went back to original sources. Yeah, Egyptian sources, biblical sources, and the measurements themselves. And from that, I devised all of my uh, little theories. So, And it's, it's very unique as well. I don't think anyone has done anything like this before. Um, like nobody has ever pointed out that the circumference of the Great Pyramid is the same as the Imperial Mile. I mean, it's such a basic and obvious thing, but I don't think anyone else has ever mentioned that. So... That is definitely a first. Um, so, yeah, so where do we get to? Oh, yeah, well, the Thoth qubit um, was made, was designed for the Great Pyramid. It was part and parcel of the same uh, construction project. So we can quite confidently say that any... Um, construction that contains the um, the Thoth qubit must post-date the Great Pyramid. So if you find any old kingdom uh, monuments or megaliths or whatever that use that measurement system, they must post-date the Great Pyramid. 
because that measurement system was made for the pyramid. So that's a, that's a change as well. Unfortunately, there are not too many um, very old monuments that predate uh, the Great Pyramid. But um, what, what would those monuments be? I'm curious, actually, that might predate. Uh, well, things like the uh, Pyramid of Djoser and so on. I mean, that is supposed to predate Okay. Um, the Great Pyramid. I'll have to look at all of the measurements in that. But if the the Pyramid of Djoser is using the Thoth cubit, then it must have been built after the Great Pyramid. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. So Ralph, what's the significance of the pyramid shape in general? Like, why did they decide that this was the shape that they were going to create as a cathedral to the cosmos? As you as you say, like, what was that significance to them? Well, because it's mathematical. <coughs> it's mathematical. Yeah. Um, you can have different ones. <clears throat> so, for instance, the um, the tomb of Cleopatra Selene, the daughter of uh, Cleopatra, uh, she built a conical pyramid. Uh, that's much later, of course. That was, um, you know, first century BC. But she built an enormous great uh, pyramid. I mean, not as big as the Giza pyramids, of course, yeah. over in in, <coughs> in uh, Algeria, in North Africa, uh, which is still there, but not many people visit it because it's been so uh, dangerous to go there recently. So you can have other mathematical functions that you can use. Um, but it's basically mathematical. B, it sort of looks like a star because these are representative of stars yeah. um, and points in the cosmos. So uh, I think you probably all know that the Giza pyramids are made in the layout of the um, uh, belt of Orion, mm -hmm. the mm. three stars of Orion. Now, that I think is true. Um, and since they're stars, it's nice to have a sort of shape that, vaguely looks like a star um and it's an easy thing to construct and you can make it represent a circle so the great pyramid is um pi times two uh it's two pi r um two times pi times the r and r is the in this case it's the height of the pyramid um, and that is the form of the Great Pyramid. It's a, a representation of the formula for a circle. So again, they're giving you a hint that, you know, these designers understood mathematics quite well. Yeah. Um, but the external design is not really what they were looking for. It's the internal that's more important. Um, and I suppose just before we get on to that, the, uh, there is the importance of the pyramids throughout history, which nobody has really looked into much. And I'm not sure if we did this on our Old Testament uh, talk at all. Um, but you've got these enormous great pyramids, which are, you know, the wonders of the ancient world. In ancient times, these would have been the wonders of the world. So you've got to ask yourself, why is there not very many mentions of these pyramids? And coincident with that, you've got to wonder why 
um, the Israelites managed to lose their sacred mountain. I mean, how could they lose Mount Sinai? This was a highly literate people who understood their history and wrote everything down, and yet they don't know where their sacred mountain is. I don't think that's true. I think they know exactly where their mountain is. Um, and, and you can find it quite easily just by looking at the attributes uh, of Mount Sinai. Um, so Sinai was on the edge of a desert. It was the tallest mountain in the region. It was small enough to cordon off because you weren't allowed to touch it. It was sacred. Um, it was very sharp and difficult to climb. So it was obviously a very steep mountain. But you could go up the side of it um, because there was a cave inside. You could go up the side, as Moses did, and you could go down a tunnel inside it uh, because God lived in the center of this mountain. Uh, and more importantly, at the bottom of this mountain, there was a black uh, pavement that looked like the night sky. Um, and, well, you've got to ask sort of, you know, what was that? Well, it's pretty obvious, really. If you've got a broad mind, it's fairly obvious what they're trying to describe. And they're trying to describe this, the Great Pyramid. So mm. Mount Sinai is the Great Pyramid of Egypt, because as we were talking about before in the Old Testament talk, that these people were... Uh, important people, pharaohs and aristocrats uh, from Egypt. And so their sacred mountain was the Great Pyramid because the Great Pyramid is um, the tallest mountain <laughs> pyramid uh, in Egypt. Um, it is small enough to cordon off. You could very easily put a rope around the uh, bottom of it. It is sharp and difficult to climb. Um, it does have a cave inside it, and it must have had some steps going up to it um, because we have a, an indication from Strabo. So Strabo is, uh, what, first century BC, and he obviously went to the Giza Plateau, and he says on the Great Pyramid, a little way up on one side, there is a stone that may be taken out which being raised up, there is a sloping passage down to the foundations. Now, that is a perfect description of what you actually find within the Great Pyramid. Um, because the upper chambers were still concealed at this time. Um, so all you would have had was a long passage that goes to the bottom of the pyramid with a cave, as he describes it. Um, the fact, uh, yes, he described it as a, a cave in the foundations. Well, that's exactly what you find. There's not a chamber down there. There's just a cave down the bottom. And if you had no access to the upper chambers, you would not know anything about them. So Strabo is saying there's a, a stone door that you can actually lift up. It's on some sort of hinge mechanism. Um, so there must have been a way of actually climbing up to the entrance of the pyramid on the north side, and then going down that um, that passageway down to the bottom. Um, and then at the bottom of the Great Pyramid, you have the black basalt pavement, which conforms exactly to what the Torah is saying about a, a black or dark blue 
uh, pavement at the bottom of Mount Sinai that looks like the night sky. Well, that's exactly what we find uh, at the bottom on the east face of the Great Pyramid. So it's perfectly obvious that, that Mount Sinai uh, is the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And that's why we get, because I always like double checks, triple checks, quadruple checks, that's why we get this um, concentration on the number 40. Uh, so, you know, the Israelites are 40 years in the wilderness, which is obviously incorrect. You could not survive 40 years in the Sinai Peninsula because it's, it's, it's a desert. Um, you know, the, you get the 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Moses and Jesus were both 40 days and nights. David's um, reign is 40 years. Same for Solomon, if I remember correctly. There's this concentration within these texts on the number 40. And uh, what is the reason for that? Well, it's because... Uh, I was just looking for an image, but uh, it didn't come out. Oh, well, never mind. Um, it's because the Great Pyramid is a 40 times copy of Pi. Hmm. So if you get Pi... And, and multiply by two, because remember, it's two pi r, it's a formula for our circle. If you get pi, multiply by two, multiply by 40, you get the dimensions of the Great Pyramid. It is a 40 times copy of pi. And so these mentions of the number 40 throughout the um, Old Testament and New Testament texts is just an indication that the person had been initiated into the um, secret mysteries uh, of the Great Pyramid. And, of course, if the Great Pyramid was Mount Sinai, the, the sacred mountain of the Israelites and the Jews, then, of course, it would have been the center of their um, religious world. Because, I mean, think about it, you know, Joseph was the prime minister of all Egypt. He lived at Heliopolis, which is like an arrow's arc away from Giza. And yet you go through the, um, uh, you go through the Torah and you search for great pyramid or pyramid, and it'll say, nothing found. That's simply not possible. You would not mm. get these people living in Egypt for 200 or 400 years who had not been to the pyramids and marveled at the uh, size and grandeur of these great monuments, even if they didn't like them because their religion was not the same. And I don't agree with that because I think um, prior to the 600 BC and the Babylonian exile, uh, the Israelites were polytheistic. So, of course, they would have venerated the Great Pyramid. Um, you know, uh, King Solomon built uh, temples to four different gods. The Israelites who went on the exodus with um, um, the, the mad priest Jeremiah, they were venerating Isis. So they were polytheistic. They indulged in the uh, various gods of the Egyptians. And so, of course, the, the pyramids would not have been uh, heretical to them. Um, so that's an indication of how important the Great Pyramid and the other pyramids were. 
um, during the biblical sort of era. Um, and then we've got to find out what on earth are these, what, what are the pyramids for? Uh, what was the reason for, for placing them there with all of this mathematics in it? I think Josephus Flavius gives us a clue at mm-hmm. the beginning of his Antiquities, which is his Antiquities of the Jews, is his copy of the um, Old Testament. And he says that at the beginning of time, uh, two pillars were built, one built of stone, one built of brick, upon which the, um, the knowledge of the world was inscribed. And I think this is what he's talking about, that the pillar or the pyramid of brick would be over in uh, Babylon with the uh, great uh, ziggurats and the uh, pillar or pyramid of stone would have been these ones at Giza and they did have the information um, of the ancients upon them Uh, they had um, well they had mathematics they had cosmology and I think they had cartography there as well which we will look about in a minute. Um, so what else can we look at before we go on to that? <clears throat> well, we can be sure that people have been interested in this throughout history. Um, one of the first people to measure the pyramid and decipher the uh, the cubit length as the royal cubit, the Thoth cubit, was um, Sir Isaac Newton. So uh, he wrote, of course, this is back in the 18th century, he wrote the um, dissertation upon the sacred cubit of the Jews. Note the interest in metrology again. The the cubit length was interesting to people because if you read the Old Testament, it's full of metrology, the exact dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, the exact dimensions uh, of the tabernacle. It's all very important. And Newton obviously realized this and they realized the mathematical significance of this. And so, so he wrote this fairly complex dissertation upon the sacred cubit of the Jews, which he based upon the Great Pyramid. Because the Great Pyramid was uh, available at that time, and he was the first person to realize that the king's chamber was actually 10 by 20 cubits. And therefore, he discovered the um, uh, the Thoth cubit length. So, uh, yes, yeah, this has always been um, a concern of people that they were very interested in this. Um, and um, then we get the discovery of the upper chambers, because remember, the upper chambers were concealed. So nobody knew there were upper chambers. Now, I, I don't think this is so much. Uh, people will say it's because they want to conceal the burial of the uh, pharaoh, and therefore the upper chambers were concealed. I think it's because, actually, that this is a quest. And you've got to go on a quest. You've got to go and search for this information. It's not readily available. No one has scribed on the um, outside of the pyramid, um, you know, E equals MC squared or something. There is nothing obvious on the outside of the pyramid. Uh, You've got to go and look for this. 
And one of the ways they did this, and we've got several uh, of these uh, pointers, is by concealing the upper chambers. But you've got to be able to find them, in a, otherwise the whole quest is, is meaningless. If it's so difficult that no one ever finds it, then it's, it's, it's worthless. There's no point making this quest in the first place. So what they did is outside the pyramid on the plateau, there is a shaft that goes down in exactly the same fashion as the Great Pyramid shaft inside the pyramid. And someone might look at this at some point, and they did, I think. And that person was Caliph al-Mamun back in the Muslim era, um, and decide that, well, that looks actually rather like the passageway inside the pyramid. But the difference is that in the, the what they call the trial passage nowadays, there is a passage that goes upwards. So it branches and there's a passage that goes upwards. Well, if you measure down the trial passage, which we, uh, I, I did this work with um, uh, Mark, um, can't remember his surname for a minute. Um, if you measure down the trial passage, which we call the guide passage, uh, until you get to this uh, join in two passageways, if you do that inside the Great Pyramid, and maybe you tap along the roof a little bit, you will find that it's hollow. And if you break the stone in the roof, you might find that there is another passageway there, which they did. And this is the ascending passage that goes up towards the king's and the queen's chamber. And so somebody, and we think this was, uh, as I say, Caliph al-Mamun, which is... Um, I'm just trying to remember his era. I think he's 1,200 years ago. I think he's about eight, eight or 900 AD. Um, you might find the upper chambers, which I think they did. And then, of course, we have the um, passageway of Caliph al-Mamun. So if you go to the Great Pyramid today, um, the last time I was there, I was there in October last year, um, you actually enter the pyramid via Caliph al-Mamun's tunnel. So you've got this um, new tunnel that he made that bores, you know, through the side of the pyramid. It's not a proper, it's not an ancient tunnel. He's just... Nine, his ninth century, through. I'm reading. Ninth century. Ninth century, yeah. Yeah. That's about right. Yeah. 1,200 years ago. Um, and that tunnel will take you into the passageways in the pyramid. And it's always been said that Caliph al-Mumun could not find the entrance, and therefore he bored this whole this this tunnel through the side of the pyramid. We never thought that was true because it's absurd. Um, the tunnel itself is too accurate. Well, no, before that, the original entrance was always open. So it was known about. We know that because Strabo tells us about it. So the original entrance, which is just above the Caliph al-Mamun entrance, uh, was always open. And even if it wasn't open in the Muslim era, uh, that entrance would have been scuffed and marked with thousands of years of people going up to that entrance and going into it. It would have been obvious, just as it's perfectly obvious if you look at the third pyramid, 
the entrance passageway for the third pyramid is, is perfectly obvious exactly where it is because it's cut around it so you can see it. Um, so the original entrance was always known about. So why was Caliph al-Mamun thrusting this um, uh, new tunnel into the side of the pyramid? Well, the problem with the Caliph al-Mamun tunnel is it's too accurate. It goes straight to the join between the descending passage and the ascending passage. That is more too much of a coincidence. Can't have happened like that. So we developed this uh, idea that that passageway was not made for Caliph al-Mamun to go into the pyramid. It was made for Caliph al-Mamun to come out of the pyramid. The reason being, they must have had something that was too big to get around the join between the descending passage and the ascending passage, which is quite an acute angle. They couldn't get whatever it is around that join. And the only way to get this booty, whatever it was, out of the pyramid was to force a tunnel out of the side of the pyramid. Question is, what did they find? Um, mm. It could have been something like a stone sarcophagus or something. Um, the queen's chamber is bare. There could have been a sarcophagus in there. It could have been something like the lid of the sarcophagus that's in the king's chamber. Now, they couldn't get the sarcophagus out because it's too big to go out of the entrance door um, to the king's chamber. But they could have taken the um, lid out if they had really wanted the lid. Um, or it could have been some other artifact that they found inside that they didn't want to break up into pieces and take it out of the um, descending and ascending passage. Ralph, um, just quickly, if they did find a sarcophagus in there, would that have made it a tomb, the, the pyramid, or no? What's up, everybody? Hope you're enjoying this episode. Just want to intervene real quick to shout out some amazing members of our Friends of the Truth community. Shout out to Anita, Mila, Sarah, Carmen, Ishan. We're so grateful for your, your participation in our community um, and just excited for how things develop. For anyone that's listening that's interested in supporting our work on a deeper level, we offer awesome value inside Friends of the Truth, and you can learn more at friendsofthetruth.co. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy the rest of this episode. No, because these sarcophagi were ritual. Okay. It's the same as any cathedral or church within Christianity. The central item in every church or cathedral is our sarcophagus, an empty sarcophagus. Oh, it's empty. We call them the, the altar. The altar okay. is an empty sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it represents the empty tomb of Jesus. That's what it's rep representative of. Well, same in the ancient world, that we had these mystery religions, which were uh, re resurrection religions, like modern masonry. If you go through uh, the third degree in masonry, you die, you are put into a shallow grave, and you are born again, as it were, three days later. You're brought back to life. Um, well, that was a part, a part and parcel of these mystery schools. And of course, it happens to be that the king's chamber uh, is the ideal Masonic uh, temple. Um, because a Masonic temple is supposed to be a two-by-one sized temple. And of course, the king's chamber is 20 by 10 cubits. It's the perfect size for a 
Masonic chamber. Um, and so these um, sarcophagi are ritual because they have no markings on them. You know, there's no name of the pharaoh on it. Uh, no evidence that anyone was ever buried in them. Um, so they were ritual chambers for for gods, I suppose, like Osiris, who rose again from the dead. You know, Osiris was one of the original resurrecting gods. Um, so, yeah, so that's interesting. So we get, we're on this quest, because this quest continues on and on and on. And the next bit of the quest, so we, we've we've got past the first bit. We've found the upper chambers. We've got the queen's chamber. We've got the king's chamber. But that's part of the quest. The second quest is the small um, tunnels, the small channels inside. And I might as well bring up an image of these. Yes. Um, if I scan down. Yeah, yes. So you'll have to share again, Ralph, if you want to. Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to find the share button. Here we go, share button. Um, so if I share this one, so we've got a, a tunnel. Now, this is a very small tunnel. This is the, what they call the air shafts inside the Great Pyramid. So coming out of the uh, king's chamber, are these very, very small air shafts. In, in, in inch terms, they're probably about um, eight inches by 10 inches or something, so they're quite small. You certainly wow. cannot go down oh. them. Oh, wow. You could send a rat up it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this one uh, from the king's chamber used to go out to the outside air, and apparently on the outside there was a gold plate um, someone at some point in time mentioned a gold plate on the outside, uh, but that's long gone, of course, so we don't have that because someone has stolen all of the uh, cladding stones. But anyway, we get this um, air shaft that goes all the way up, and this is just showing that it's not perfect. The bottom of this air shaft has broken off a little bit um, as it goes up. Um but it's perfectly obvious you can see this air shaft in the king's chamber and you can follow it. But what's it for? Because um, Gantenbrink, Rudolf Gantenbrink, who did the first survey uh, of these air shafts in the Great Pyramid, said that they are so complex that they would double the time it took to make the pyramid. Because if we have a look at uh, what the shaft looks like, ooh, that's a bit small. Let's make that bigger. So for people who can't see this, we've got some stones showing how the air shaft was made. So you've got um, uh, a sloping block underneath and then a block on top, which has the shape of the air shaft in it, carved into it, placed on top. Uh, you have to imagine a partner to this top stone to make a mm -hmm. square underneath. Yep. <clears throat> now, the problem with that is you've got this sloping shaft going all the way up uh, at 45 degrees, right to the uh, outside of the pyramid. And uh, that is dangerous. What you've got here is like a train with, you know, uh, 50 or 60 carriages on it on a 45-degree slope. And, of course, your train is going to go straight <laughs> straight down the tracks 
and all of these stones will end up in the king's chamber. Uh, that's just a fact of gravity. So what the designer had to do is every, I don't know, five uh, or so of these blocks in the shaft, they had to put a huge great girdle stone in to surround it to tie in this shaft into the rest of the pyramid so the shaft didn't slip down in, into the chamber below. You see how complicated all of this was mm -hmm. to make this stupid little shaft, which is perfectly stupid unless it has some real meaning and function. And of course, we don't know what this function is because it's not an air shaft, um, as we will see. <clears throat> because we know it's not an air shaft because down in the Queen's chamber, this shaft was never cut through. So it wasn't cut through to the outside and it wasn't cut through into the chamber. Again, we're back to this quest. Are you clever enough to realize that if there is a shaft in the uh, king's chamber, well, well, perhaps there might be one in the queen's chamber as well? So you've got to go along with your, uh, with, with your hammer or whatever and tap along the side of this uh, chamber and see if you can find a shaft in the queen's chamber. And uh, a very ancient researcher back in the Victorian era that I can't remember his name, but I will in a minute, um, he did exactly that. And he managed to put a piece of wire into the side of the chamber. And he had found the, the shaft. I try not to call it an air shaft. He found the shaft in the Queen's chamber. And so they cut it out and found an identical shaft in the Queen's chamber. Well, two shafts, one either side. Um, so it, again, it's a quest. You've got to go searching for this. It's not obvious. You, you've got to have sufficient understanding that there might be another shaft. And well, now you've got four shafts. Yeah. Why, why are they known um, as the King's and Queen's chamber? It's just an appellation. There's, there's, there's no evidence for king or queen whatsoever. Okay. It's just one mm. is uh, slightly bigger and one slightly smaller. Got you. Um, so, yeah, that's a recent um, term that was coined, I think, in the um, Victorian era. Um, you could call them upper and lower chambers, I think would be better. Yep. Um, and so it was proposed by Robert Beauval Mm. that these um, shafts pointed at stars. Uh -huh. Seemed logical, perhaps, but Boval was wrong, like he was wrong on most things. Uh, um, I think this was about his only real finding, and it turned out to be wrong. So he proposed uh, that these shafts pointed at stars. And so we're looking at a, a map here of the um, a cross section, I should say, of the Great Pyramid, uh, with these shafts running up and, as it were, pointing uh, at stars at certain angles. But of course, there are many problems with this idea. Uh, firstly, you cannot look up these shafts because they go horizontal for a meter before going upwards. So you can't look up these shafts. Secondly, uh, the Queen's Chamber shaft was never cut, as we say, um, into the chamber or even to the exterior. So they weren't cut. Um, so you could only do this star pointing on a cross-section diagram. Mm. 
you could not do it inside the pyramid. And secondly, I mean, it looks fine on this diagram we've got with the shafts pointing at certain stars in the night sky. But of course, it doesn't do this in the night sky. Um, these stars go up and down. It's part of procession, procession of the equinox, which we've already talked about. Um, the procession of the equinox makes the stars at the um, spring equinox change every 2,200 years. But they also make the stars in the night sky go up and down. And so these stars on the left here, Orion and Sirius, will go up and down over the millennia. And so at some point, you can match them up with the angle here uh, in the, uh, from the shafts in the king's and queen's chamber. But it doesn't happen like we've got it on this map. And you'll see this, this sort of chart on, even in um, serious Egyptology texts now, you'll see this diagram. But it doesn't happen like this because it'll point at Orion in one month, and then it'll point at Sirius three or four months later. It's not simultaneous as it's drawn in this diagram. So it's not quite as perfect as, as has been described. And then if we look at the, the northern shafts, which are I've, I've put here, any circumpolar star of your choosing. <laughs> because there are no major stars up in the, the near the North Pole at anywhere where that North Pole would have been. Remember, the North Pole changes. Uh, we're, currently, we're pointing at Polaris, but it goes in a big circle around the heavens. And at any of the dates uh, that are proposed for Orion and Sirius, there are no bright stars in the northern sky that the northern shafts can be pointing at. You will see often that it's claimed that um, it's pointing at Polaris, but it's not pointing at Polaris at all. It's two degrees off. Um, or, uh, you know, um, not, not necessarily Polaris, but a, a, a pole star from 4,500 years ago. Um, it's, it's way off, and it's not a bright star. So this um, star pointing theory just doesn't work. So what are, and there's another good reason for this, um, if I can stop sharing, perhaps. Yep. There's another good reason for this in that the, the shafts themselves are <clears throat> pi again. They're pi numbers. So um, what do we get? The numbers are, for the king's shaft, we've got 39 and 45 degrees. Sorry, 39 and a half degrees and 45 degrees. And for the queen shafts, we've got 39 and a half degrees and 32 and a half degrees. Now, the difference between those angles, and these, these angles are quite steady because these, these shafts are well built. They don't fluctuate up and down. They go very, very nicely from the start of the chamber all the way up to their end at the same angle even if laterally they wind a little bit like a snake. But taken in cross-section, they go up at a constant angle. Now, the difference between these angles in these shafts is 7 degrees and 5.5 degrees. 
a quarter of pi. We're talking about pi shafts again. You know, the pyramid is a pi pyramid, and the shafts um, are pi shafts. They're, ba- they're mathematical. They're based on pi. And the trouble is with that is you cannot get a pi shaft to point at the particular star at a particular date. So the star shaft pointing theory is incorrect. And you have to think of a different um, a different rationale for why they should have been made. And I don't know if you want to talk about anything else before we go on to what they mean, because this, this is where it starts to become a little bit esoteric. Um, are there any points we should discuss before we talk about what the shafts mean? We, we, we like esoteric, Ralph. Yeah, but um, that explanation is like the icing on the cake. So perhaps we should discuss anything else first. So are there any, any, any of your other questions we can ask answer first? Well, do you mean unrelated questions to the about the shafts or? Uh, no, about anything to do with the pyramids and the. I mean, sure. So, for example, my earlier question, when do you gauge that the pyramids were actually built yourself? Ah, yeah. Yeah, we didn't answer that one, did we? Okay, well, there are a few ways of doing that. Um, So here is one. If I do a quick uh, screen share again. Uh, So we want to... Why is that screen... The page I want is not coming up. Let's try... Let me stop that and do it again. Screen share. Ah, oh, here it is. There we go. Why didn't that come up first time? It's always a bit strange. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here we have um, the base of the Great Pyramid. Now, readers will uh, and listeners will have... Um, heard about the controversy of the erosion patterns in the uh, Sphinx temple enclosure, I'm sure, which mm-hmm. indicate that the pyramid is older than people expect. Well, here is another erosion pattern, which again indicates that the pyramid might be older. What we're looking at is the base of the Great Pyramid. Um, perhaps if I go on to this one, might be better to explain first of all. Sure. So here's another part of the base ah, of the pyramid. It. Now, <clears throat> um, what's happened here is, is this big block we can see in front of us is the platform, as it were, that the pyramid was built upon. Uh, where the lady is standing there and the blue arrow on the right-hand side, that's where the pyramid used to be before someone stole all of the um, casing blocks on the outside of it. Um, so in one piece of stone here, we have uh, a piece of this stone which has always been covered uh, by casing blocks until the era of Caliph al-Mamun, which is, you know, call it a thousand years ago. Uh, um, and the left side has always been eroded, you know, by the wind, the weather, the sun, the feet of pilgrims or whatever. So the left side has always been open to the air and eroded. And you can see it's eroded a lot more, of course. And then on the right, this has only been eroded for 1,000 years. And you can see a considerable difference 
between the always exposed and the recently exposed stone. And going back to that first picture we had here again, we can see. Uh, so the cross hatching I've put on it is where the casing blocks used to be, the side of the pyramid. And the left side has always been exposed, the right hand side not. The problem being is the left side is at least 10 times more eroded than the right side. Now, if the right side has only been exposed for a thousand years and we presume constant erosion rates, then this would make the um, Great Pyramid at least 10,000 years old. So that's a good indication just on erosion rates that the pyramid might be much older um, than we expect. Um, another oddity which we can look at for erosion is the um, sphinx. So here is the sphinx head. And you can see that, um, well, it's, it's normally covered with um, sand. So this is an old picture back from the uh, 19th century. And all you've got is the head of the sphinx poking out of the sand. Um, and that's, well, the whole thing is an oddity, really. Um, you can see, especially from this picture, actually, the Huge difference in erosion between the head and the body. So the body is heavily eroded and the head is not. That is because the head, and here's another picture of it, the body is eroded, the head is not. You can see how much sand there used to be, <laughs> how high mm -hmm. up the head is. And on that previous 19th century picture, it's all buried completely. Um, wow. This head is made of um, the... Layer three, I think they call this, of the um, strata that go through the Giza Plateau. So it's made of a different type of sandstone than level two and level one below it, which erode much more quickly. And that's why the body is eroded, but the head is not. It's a different it's material. It's a different type of stone. Okay. Mm, sorry, say again? It's a different material you're saying? Yeah. Um, and, but, but there's a problem with that um, because this is, you know, Another strata that used to sit on top of layer two, this is layer three. Um, but how on earth could you find a block of stone, because this is the only block that's around here, of this harder stone, in the right place to make the, um, the head of the Sphinx? It's said that this is a yardang. A yardang is a lump of stone that's been left over after erosion. You find them a lot in sort of like Monument Valley and so on in America. But what's the chances of finding this piece of stone in just the right position where you can make a sphinx? Because that sphinx is, is built in a very specific location at the end of the um, uh, causeway from the second pyramid. It's in a special position. It's not just in any old position. So what's the chances of finding a yard dang in the right place to make the head of the sphinx? Um, I don't think that's possible. I think what they must have done is they must have found a block of this layer three, strata three, and dragged it into the right position to place it on top of layer two to make the head of the Sphinx. The problem with that being that this must have been perhaps one of the biggest stones ever um, ever moved in ancient times. You know, if you look into um, Lebanon and the Temple of Baalbek, 
the stones they were using there are up to 1,200 tons. Um, how you move a stone of that nature, I don't really know. But this stone, if they've moved this stone into position to make the head of the Sphinx, this weighs about 2,500 or 3,000 tons before it was cut down to the head of the Sphinx. Um, that is a huge lump of stone to be moving into the right position. Um, and I see no other way of actually doing that. So that, that shows that the amount of work they went to in, in order to make the um, Giza Plateau. And remember things like the second pyramid <clears throat> was not built on a level piece of ground. So in order to build the second pyramid, they had to cut into the back of the, where the pyramid is, uh, which is the west side. They had to cut into the bedrock to make the foundations for the pyramid. And on the east side, they had to build it up with megalithic blocks to make a platform upon which they could build the pyramid. And I think you know the work they did in making the platform is as great as the pyramid itself. There's enormous great megalith megalithic blocks all over the eastern side of the pyramid to build it up, uh, and also under the mortuary temple um, just below the pyramid, to build it up to the right height so you could actually build a pyramid on it. A lot of work went into making these pyramids, which is not all obvious. You know, It's not just about building pyramids. Um, and how can we date these pyramids? Well, one way we can do it is through procession. And uh, here we're looking at, I don't know if this will do anything. No, it might not. This is supposed to be a GIF. Um, so this is a, a, an image of the Earth with the North Pole uh, pointing out towards, uh, well, nowadays it would be uh, Polaris. Yes, it says Polaris up the top. And then it draws this big circle in the heavens above every 26,000 years. That's procession of the equinox. That is the, um, the great year as it used to be known. So this is just saying that, you know, the earth wobbles on its axis and that wobble changes the direction of uh, the axis of the earth through a big circle every 26,000 years. I, I take it you're not a flat earther elf. <laughs> Possibly not. <laughs> Um, the thing is, you can use this to date your um, megalith. Because if the designer um, aligns their monument with a particular star, that will give you the era of the um, building of that, uh, uh, that project. And so what we can do um, here, oh, here's the other effect. So here we're looking at a star map looking at the um, uh, the equator, you might say, of the solar system, the ecliptic. And this movement of, of the Earth also changes the stars, the constellation that rises at the spring equinox. This is known as the precession of the equinox. And you can see on here a red line marked out with years, uh, thousands of years minus and plus. So it starts with 4,000 years ago. No, BC, not ago. Um, 4,000 BC on the left, all the way up to 2,000 AD on the right. And 
it's going, you know, through the constellations from Taurus to Aries to Pisces. This is procession. We know all about it. But <clears throat> your monument can be pointing at a specific location. And that will give us a specific date. Because here we see Taurus is 4,000. Uh, it's actually 4,500 years uh, BC to 1750 BC. And then uh, Aries is from 1750 BC to um, turn of the first millennium, AD 10. And so we can see in the next picture, we can see the Sphinx looking at Leo coming across the horizon. Now, this has been known for quite some time. Quite a few writers have written about this, that Leo seems to be looking at itself, the constellation of, sorry, the Sphinx yep. appears to be looking at Leo coming over the horizon, which it only does, you know, circa about 10,500 BC. So we can use that as a date. Um, I have a slightly different date because the Sphinx is actually at the end of the second pyramid causeway. And if we use the second pyramid causeway direction, it doesn't point due east. It points one month away from, as it were, due east. So instead of being at the uh, spring equinox, it points at February the 19th, one month away from the spring equinox because it's a 14-degree um, causeway from due east. And if you use that angle for this same processional dating, looking at Leo coming over the horizon, you end up with 2,000 years earlier. So instead of 10,500 BC, you end up with 13,000. Uh, no, 12,500 uh, BC or 14,500 years ago. Yeah. Um, so that is a possible date for the Great Pyramid. There's another way of dating this. So now we're looking at another diagram. And on the right of this diagram, we've got the layout of the Giza pyramids from above, looking from above, three pyramids of, the, of Giza, running down towards the Red Pyramid at Dashur, and then going on to the Bent Pyramid at Dashur. Now, these are the only megalithic pyramids. There are other pyramids around, but they're all sort of more recent, made of small stones and made of mud bricks. I don't think they are a part of this diagram. So we end up with these um, five megalithic pyramids. And as above, so below the old adage, they might be representing stars. So Giza pyramids, lots of people have already said that they represent uh, the belt of Orion. So on the left, we see the belt of Orion, which does indeed look very, very similar. Um, and then running down to the Red Pyramid and Bent Pyramid. Now, I think these are not stars. Other people have said these are stars. I think these are points in space, perhaps. So Red Pyramid to Bent Pyramid, I think we're looking at the ecliptic pole and the celestial pole, the axes, the two axes of the great wheels of the cosmos because they turn like great wheels in the heavens above. And these are the axles of the wheels, what used to be known as um, uh, King Arthur's cosmic cart, I think it was known, because it looks like the two wheels of a cart rotating in the heavens above. 
Um, And so on the left, we've got the representation as you might see it on a planisphere. So we've got Orion, belt of Orion, going down to the ecliptic pole and onto the celestial pole. Now, if that is the layout that they were looking at, this will give us a very accurate date because these the position of the celestial pole changes uh, relative to the ecliptic pole. So the celestial pole circles around the ecliptic pole. It actually goes around in a big circle once every 26,000 years, the procession of the equinox. And so the position of these two pyramids down at Dashur might give us a date. And you get the date from the angle. And as you can see, the angle here is 191 degrees. The average um, is just less less than 72 years. And it's um, 71.6, I think it is. Um, 71.6 years for every degree of movement. Um, And so we come out with um, 13,600 years ago. Wow. Um, Yeah, so you can use this to date. And actually, when I did this in my talk, it came out with the same date. Uh, I'm not sure why I've got a discrepancy there. It came out with the same date as the Sphinx looking at Leo date. Got you. Is there any um, astrotheological significance of the Sphinx looking at Leo and obviously the Leo um, being indicative of, I guess, um, the solar hero to extent and like the sun worship culture within Egypt at the time? And this also, I guess, being the origins of, you know, some of the branches of mainstream religion we see today also? Um, I think the reason they chose Leo was because that was the era that they were they were actually building this project in. So when the builders arrived, whoever okay. the builders were, they arrived in a particular era. Yes. And that was the pattern they saw in the uh, in the heavens above. So that was the pattern they copied. Yeah. So they copied Leo because it was the age of Leo. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. And the the well, other oddity with this, if you go on to this with Makes, yeah, makes they're sense. just reflecting because yeah. they wanted to record the the era of the construction project. You know, yeah, what that was the saying. whole point of it. Yeah, um, because this is a chronological mark. Yeah, I've I've also heard theories that at that time, according to the Egyptian New Year, the sun was born in Virgo, and this is actually the origins of you know being born to the Virgin Mother, the sun being the solar deity again, indicative of um, you know. Jesus, etc., was uh, born born in Virgo at the time, hence being the whole story of being born to the Virgin Mother. Well, this story changed throughout the uh, millennia, of course, because e- each millennia would be under a different sign of the zodiac. So, you yeah. know, if, if you look at um, ancient Egypt, they were venerating the Apis bull. Why? Because the Apis bull was the era of Taurus, the great month of Taurus. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alexander the Great and the Hyksos, the Hyksos shepherd kings, were venerating sheep and shepherds. Aries. Because they were in the age of, of Aries. Yep. So, yes, if someone was observing in the age of, um, uh, of Virgo, then they would have had the legends of, of you know, uh, of, of the Virgin and Virgo. 
Um, I don't think that's connected with the Giza Plateau, though. That would be a different era and a, a different legend. Okay. Um, but what we're looking at now is a graph because the thing is with um, with these processional and obliquity patterns is they repeat. So who says we're looking at the latest cycle? These cycles carry on ad infinitum. So what we're looking at in red here is a graph of procession, how procession uh, uh, changes. Um, and it's a regular sawtooth, well, because it's a circle, but when you draw it on a graph, it becomes a sawtooth. Um, and the blue uh, lines running across it are the age of Leo. So we can drop the first one where we uh, hit the age of Leo, which comes out at about 14,000 uh, years ago. But who says that's the age that they were talking about? They might have built it in the previous cycle. And so the age of Leo before that was 40,000 years ago. And the age of Leo before that was 66,000 years ago. And in my latest talk, I postulated that these megalithic monuments were built at 66,000 years ago because that's the only way I could get Avebury and Stonehenge to match Giza. I mean, they could have been built in different eras, of course, but you know, if you want synergy and all of these megalithic uh, projects and the megalithic era, era to be in one, um, one particular date, then the only date that matched was 66,000 years ago. Uh, the reason for thinking that is that um, – so here's the pattern we get for Avebury. Um, and Avebury is not processional. It's based on obliquity. Now, obliquity is the, um, the tilt angle of the Earth, yes. Um, and so that changes as well. But that has a different cycle. That cycle is 40 thousand years old not 26 a 40,000 year cycle um and so uh i think that uh, avebury was based upon obliquity why because what is avebury i don't know if you're familiar with avebury but it's this big mm. circle this big megalithic circle 400 yards across so it's huge it's even got a village inside it it's so big um created you know again they think you know uh, 2000 BC or something of that nature. But I think it's much older because what does Avebury represent? It's got uh, like an axis. So it's it's got four quadrants. It's got like gates in the north and south and east and west. So it's got an axis. It's got an equator. It's a circle, huge, great circle. And it leans to the left a bit by about 20-odd, oh, 22-odd, uh, 22 and a half degrees. So what does that represent? I think it represents this. So we're now looking at um, Avebury from above. So on the left, we've got the plan of Avebury. And you can see it's an enormous great circle with this axis and this equator uh, leaning to the left by 22 and a half degrees. On the right of this same diagram, I've got an image of the Earth an axis and an equator and it leaning to the left at 22 and a half degrees. 
I think that Avebury is an image of the earth written in megalithic architecture on the plains of Wiltshire, which is very esoteric because, of course, nobody within classical uh, archaeology would entertain this because you're indicating that the designer of Avebury understood the form and shape of the earth whenever this was built and could draw that um, on this henge. And not only that, but in, with these small circles inside the Avebury henge, these are latitude markers. And these mark the latitude of certain items on the face of the earth. So this top one has a, a like a, a cove shape in it, which is a, a copy of Stonehenge, which is next door. It's only just north of here. Um, and around it, there are 26 stones. Two times 26 is 52, which is the latitude of Stonehenge. So I think that these smaller circles are latitude markers. So not, not only does the designer know the form and shape of the earth, but also can measure lines of latitude on the face of that earth. And they do the same with the southern hemisphere. Uh, this is an item in the southern hemisphere. So they even knew um, physical artifacts down in the southern hemisphere and marked it with the correct line of latitude. Yeah. So, hey, hey, Ralph, I have a quick question. I have a quick yeah, question sure. on that. Um, and speaking of the designer, there are obviously some theories that people believe advanced civilizations came down and, and built these megalithic structures. So would that be one possible theory on how they understood the, you know, the the, the form of the earth in order to create something as a, a form of a replica? Or is that yeah. just... Um, it's, it's virtually the only explanation. Um, you might have seen Graham Hancock's recent show that he did on Netflix, where he comes across the same problem. And the only way he can explain it is say there was a previous technical civilization that's now been wiped off the face of the earth. So that's his explanation for how this can be, because he's found different monuments. He's not talking about the monuments in the same way as I am, but he's found different evidence that shows that there was a a technical civilization many, many years ago during the meg megalithic era. Mm. I don't believe Hancock is right. Um, I would back up his, his, his right to say so. I do hate these people who mock him for saying this because they're ignoring the problem. The problem is there are artifacts around the world which are very, very difficult to explain in terms of Neolithic architecture. Um, how do these people... A, make these monuments with these enormous great megaliths, um, especially, you know, at Giza, if they're moving the head of the Sphinx, which weighs two and a half or 3,000 tons. Um, and how do they have this level of knowledge? And we'll have, yeah, back at Giza, we'll go back to Giza, we'll have um, some deep knowledge from Giza as well. Um, but how would they have the knowledge here at Avebury for this, you know, form and shape of the earth? Yeah. Well, if, if, the we also, disagree. also just observing symbolically, like I mean, the circle could be obviously the Euroboros. We have we have the Lemniscat, which looks in the in in the middle as well. Um, so yeah, just observing that. Yeah, but the lines of latitude that they give mm. on this Avebury map, and the same I do the same with Stonehenge. Uh, Stonehenge has the uh, procession of the equinox on it, 
if you look at it in the right fashion, it has the um, axis of the Earth rotating and describing the um, uh, the big circles in the heavens above. Um, is definitely talking about terrestrial circles here, about the Earth and yep. the lines of latitude. Most definitely, that that's what it's doing. Uh, the trouble is with uh, Hancock's idea is if there was a previous technical civilization, we would have a technological layer in the archaeological record. So say this technical civilization was 10,000, 20,000 years ago, you would have a layer somewhere which would have reinforced concrete, railway lines, um, you know, evidence of cities and vehicles and whatever it happens, all of the artifacts that we associate with city living would be squashed down into a layer uh, within the archaeological record. And of course, we've never found that. Yeah. Now, Graham Hancock has to say that, well, okay, maybe it's, it's out to sea because sea levels were uh, 150 meters lower um, only 15,000 years ago during the Ice Age. Maybe it's all out to sea, and we haven't done enough archaeology out on the uh, um, on the coastal margins uh, to see what's out there that could have been covered by the seas many thousands of years ago. Yeah, that's possible, but I still think you would find more because I mean these these artifacts are not out to sea; they're they're at Giza, they're at Avebury. Um, <laughs> In Wiltshire, they're inland. And so if you're building these great artifacts inland, surely your city would be close by. And of course, we don't find that evidence. Um, Ralph, so- while we're on the topic of, of Hancock, just to give our listeners a, a, as many threads as possible to pull, in your opinion, would you consider Hancock a credible source for our listeners to start exploring if they were interested or or not? Oh yes, yeah. He's he's one of the one of the better ones out there because he gives you the information and you can decide yourself what you want to make of it. I mean, he gives you prompts, of course. He says, This is my perception of you know, my explanation of uh what's what might cause this um but he lets you make up your own mind which is the way to do it and he gives a lot of information he's made some very large books on the megalithic eras and found a lot of artifacts around the world which are anomalous and so yeah they need explanation and in general um classical archaeology and history does not explain these uh, artifacts very well That's and true. so he has an alternative explanation the problem then becomes how do you explain these so he has his way of explaining with a previous technical civilization i don't think that's tenable because we would have found the um, uh, the evidence of this technical civilization what we do find is just these anomalous temples we don't find a civilization to go alongside it just these one or two very strange anomalous temples with very advanced stoneworking, tube drilling, um, you know, rotary drilling of granites and things of that nature, things that Neolithic man just certainly could not do. There's been some recent research on uh, jars, 
um, pre-dynastic jars made of um, stone, made of uh, granite. And yet the, 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 the jar is accurate within microns. I mean, it's ridiculous uh, how, how accurate these jars are. Um, so this was done by uh, Christopher Dunn. Uh, he, he's made some books, I think, on these. Uh, he, he's an engineer, so he, he concentrates on the engineering side of it. And uh, so they, they've got this jar on a micrometer and spinning the jar around. And the two handles, remembering that there is no good reason for making a jar that accurate. I mean, it's just a jug. It's a jar. It's, 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 not, some, it's not a you know, part of a space rocket or something. It's just a jar. But the two handles are within five microns of each other. It's just a ridiculous degree of, of accuracy for something that's as mundane as a, as a, um, a stone vessel. So, yeah, we do have these anomalous artifacts, but we don't have the civilization to go along with it. So the alter, alternative explanation would be a visitation from somewhere else that um, someone had a... Because this is the basis of masonry. A lot of Masonic lodges believe this as well, that there was a sort of 2001 uh, scenario with some assistance being given from elsewhere. And then they disappeared again. And so you would only have anomalous, one or two uh, anomalous artifacts uh, because that technology was not widespread on the earth at that time. Mm-hmm. So... And we'll come back to that because we ought to go on our quest, I suppose. I think we've talked <laughs> enough. Oh, the other thing with the Avebury, um, just going back to Avebury, the um, the angle of obliquity on Avebury, the tilt angle of the Earth is 22.5 degrees. Now, that's not the current angle of obliquity. It's 23.4, if I remember correctly, is the current angle. And so there's a difference, and we can check that difference because we know exactly the rate of change of the angle of obliquity. It was uh, calculated by Pierre Lascar in France, and he calculated it back 20 million years. That's how stable it is. Um, So we can use his data and go back on a graph, and we find that the possible dates for 22.5 degrees are 24,000 years ago, 34,000 years ago, or 66,000 years ago. And that ties up with the the Giza calculation, but only if you go all the way back to 66,000 years ago, which is a huge amount of time. I'm not entirely sure a pyramid or a uh, henge can last 66,000 years. But do remember, they only made these monuments in megalithic stone in order to last thousands of years. I mean, if, if you only wanted um, this information to last for, you know, a thousand years, you could build it in wood almost or small bricks. So, Ralph, when, when archaeologists some... and historians talk about, like, dating these materials, like, are you saying they can't, they can't accurately date if they were to grab, like, a sample of a piece of stone or something? Like, is that something that doesn't really happen? No, um, because the dating is, is very difficult. 
Um, there are some new dates coming out uh, for Geezer and so on, which I'll have to amalgamate into my theories. The problem is with um, things like uh, carbon-14 dating, which is the main method of dating for Stonehenge and Avery, is you never know if the artifact is concurrent with the construction date. So they will find a, uh, a, a, a pickaxe. They were using um, antler horns as pickaxes. So wow. they'll find an antler in the bottom of Avebury, and they will date it. And they say, oh, well, that, that antler dates to 2500 BC. So that's you know, the date of Avebury. But, of course, you have no idea whether that antler was concurrent with the construction period. It could have been someone who was tidying up uh, Avebury in, in, in a much later date. Uh, and we have evidence that these sacred sites were kept very, very clean. Um, and so people would not be dropping things in the bottom of these um, uh, sacred spaces. Um, when they lifted some of the stones at Stonehenge, now, when you're constructing something like Stonehenge, you would imagine there would be huge, great wooden pit props, you know, to guide the stones into position and all that sort of stuff. But when they raised the stone, there was no wood in the bottom of it to do any dating. It was perfectly clean, which is most unusual. So there was nothing really. The only way you can get a date is if you lifted a stone at Stonehenge or Avebury and found a piece of datable material at the bottom of it then you could possibly say, yes, that's concurrent with the um, construction era. But anything you find in the bottom of a ditch or anything in the bottom of, say, the um, uh, Aubrey holes at Stonehenge and so on, uh, or any of the burials, because there's a few burials at Stonehenge, that's not concurrent with the um, construction era because you would not allow burials. Uh, people in ancient days did not allow burials in sacred places because they're unclean. You have to bury your dead elsewhere. You don't bury your dead in a temple. The only people who bury their dead in temples are Christians, because they understood that you could make money off this, you know, by burying rich and important people. Um, so in ancient sacred sites, you will not find burials. So any burial at Stonehenge is not concurrent with the construction era. Gotcha. And same problem goes with um, Stonehenge. You can do thermal thermoluminescent dating of stone sometimes but that i it's not a very accurate way of dating something and the stone can be reset too e much too easily to another date the only possibility that's coming out recently is they've been doing carbon 14 uh dating of pieces of uh carbon that they say they have found in the mortar within uh, Giza, and they've been doing some dating on that. Now, that might be more datable as such, um, and so we'll have to look at all of the results on that when that comes in fully. Yeah. But, yeah, it's very difficult to date stone. It's just impossible to do so. Gotcha. All right, Ralph, um, you left our quest on the cliffhanger. Um, ah, yes. We were, we were on our quest, weren't we? Um, yeah, this is where it becomes a little bit esoteric. Um, so that's why I've left it until last. Um, so if I do a share screen again, 
and share that one. Um, what we ended up with inside the Great Pyramid. Um, oh, no, we need something else before that one. Let's have a look. Um, <clears throat> we just had a look at Avebury. And Avebury, we said, was an image of the earth. Well, if, if Avebury can do that, well, surely Giza Plateau can do something much greater because it's more technical. And the question was, what do these uh, chambers represent? So here we've got a diagram with all of the um, chambers inside the Great Pyramid. We've got this enormous grand gallery, which nobody has any idea what this enormous passageway is for. I mean, I, I don't know how big it is, but it's like, you know, 10 meters tall or something. It's vast for no good reason. And then in the King's Chamber, we all have all of these separate ceilings. So we got the, all these little tiny chambers above the King's Chamber, which perform no function whatsoever. They don't provide any stress relief on the, uh, uh, on the King's Chamber below. You can see that from the Queen's Chamber, which doesn't have any of these extra chambers on top. So we have a pile of stones on top of the King's Chamber, which make no sense whatsoever, and a design which makes no great sense either. And I puzzled over this for quite some time until um, one of my little diagrams turned itself upside down, and I saw this. So here we have the same diagram upside down. And I just thought to myself, well, that sort of looks like Africa and Asia to me. Bearing in mind, we've already had Avebury as an image of the earth. And so we've got the Grand Gallery as being Asia. And underneath this, we've got an image of Asia. Uh, then the uh, antechamber is the Arabias with the two seas either side. And then the King's Chamber is Africa going down to the bottom. So it's a a representation of the continents of the earth. And okay, well, that's not conclusive, but, you know, it sort of looks like it. Um, but if we utilize all of these strange um, ceilings above the king's chamber, which are now upside down, we get an image like this. So here's an image of Africa and the Great Pyramid uh, King's Chamber upside down. And it so happens that all of these strange chamber ceilings, which are nice and perfectly flat, the tops of them are not flat, just the, you know, the ceiling is flat, um, match up with the lines of latitude for Africa. Exactly. And so this could be an image of Africa. Avebury is an image of the world. Great Pyramid has an image of Africa stuck in the middle of it. Stylistic, of course, but it sort of looks like Africa. Uh, can we take that any further? Uh, I think we possibly can, because we ended up with these um, star shaft angles, which we've already said are not <coughs> uh, pointing at stars. So what are they doing? Well, they're pi numbers for a starters. We've already established that. So they're not pointing at stars. What else could they mean? We've got four uh, angles. Uh, what could they represent? 
Well, what we again found at Avebury is we found lines of latitude. So perhaps these are lines of latitude and longitude. Would sort of make sense if you've got some angles, you can easily turn them into lines of latitude and longitude. And if so, we can draw them on, on a map. And so here we've drawn them on a map. And using Giza as the primary meridian, of course, at present we use London, but the Greenwich meridian. But of course, they wouldn't be using Greenwich. They would be using the Giza meridian. And if you measure from Giza and use those angles from the Great Pyramid and draw them on a map, we end up with a huge great triangle um, on a map, which has the same dimensions as the Great Pyramid itself. Because the Great Pyramid is a pi pyramid, and therefore, because these are pi shafts with pi angles, we've just drawn a pi a pyramid, as it were, on, on our map. And so here's, this, here's our huge Great Pyramid on this map. And then the question is, where does that point to? Uh, remembering that all of this was <laughs> in the pre-internet era, it wasn't very easy to get maps, so I managed to get a map of the world. And um, you find that the big triumph triangle is in northern India, up in the high Himalaya. And so here's the triangle up in the high Himalaya. And then just on a map of the world, a fairly large map of the world at the local library, um, I realized and discovered that K2, the mountain K2, is at the center of this triangle. Which was sort of interesting, worth discovering further. Again, pre-internet um, days, so I had to go to NASA to get a better picture. And NASA had the space shuttle. Yeah, this was space shuttle era. So I bought this image from NASA. And unfortunately, you can't really see much on it. I mean, this is also, this went on for ages, because you imagine how long it took um, applying by post to NASA to get uh, film images. So not on a computer, it actually came back as um, glossy film images from from a camera and this is um the boltero glacier i don't know if you can see my uh cursor running up mm -hmm. here we've got a load of mountains always snow on the top and there's a big, big glacier that runs up through the center of it and then the glacier turns left and where it ends that is k2 but you can't really see anything it's not really visible so that didn't make any <laughs> that didn't help at all um, this was, uh, this is a later image. This comes off Google, but of course I didn't have this at the time. Um, and again, where that little marker is there is K2. And it happens to be in the very center of this triangle, the triangle that we drew on our map from the, um, Giza pyramid coordinates. It doesn't look like the center because this is, oh, I nearly press something I shouldn't do there. This triangle, uh, this map is drawn with a um, Lambert uh, conformal conic projection. And so the north looks bigger than the south. 
Um, but if you drew this with a um, um, on the surface of, of of a spherical Earth, that pointer in the middle, the K two, would be in the center of this triangle. So this difference is only because of the projection of the map. So again, that was interesting. Um, it was worth discovering if there was something about K2 that might be significant. And so the only way I could do this, because I went to Stamford's, which is the largest map shop in, in Britain, in the whole of Europe, I think it is, and they had nothing that gave any decent um, imagery of, of K2 in the region. And so they suggested, why don't I go to China and the Chinese uh, Beijing University, because they do map surveying in China. So I did. So I wrote to them by post. And they said, yeah, we've got a map. Cost you $25, which was quite a lot of money in those days. This is back in the 1990s. Um, so, and I had no way of... <laughs> How do you transfer money in the 1990s to China? It's absolutely impossible. Uh, so, yeah, I sent dollars. <laughs> so I packed off some dollars and threw it in an envelope and sent it off to China. Wow. Uh, and about a month later, six weeks later, so all of this took, you know, nigh on six months to try and find this map. Um, six months later, by the time I'd finished all of this, a map arrives from China. And it was fairly interesting. It was interesting enough for me to go and visit. And we'll have a look at that map in a minute. So I trotted off to um, the high Himalaya and walked up to um, K2 because you, you can't drive there, of course. Um, we're, we're going back centuries when you go to these places. And uh, this is the high trail. This is the path that goes up to K2. And uh, so what we're looking at is the side of a very, very steep slope here, 45, maybe even more, maybe 55-degree slope here with a little winding path running down it. Um, and on the right, if you happen to fall off, well, don't do that because you've got a 1,000-foot drop <laughs> down into the valley floor. So don't fall off. Um, so, yeah, this is highly inex inaccessible. You have to fly into Islamabad. Uh, I then took a car, which took two days to go up to Skardu, which is the nearest big town, uh, with 2,000 hairpin bends en route on this road built by, built by the Chinese, I think. It was based on a, a British road that we built back in the 19... No, in the yeah, early, uh, early 1900s. And... Um, there's been expanded, but all of these huge, great hairpin bends backwards and forwards. It was oh, such a journey. So we eventually got to Skardu, and then from Skardu, you have to walk. And it's three weeks walking to get up to base camps, uh, base camp uh, K2. <clears throat> so off we trotted up this trail, which runs up through this valley, up through eventually that. Um, glacier that we saw in that uh, image from the space shuttle and this is that <laughs> glacier this is this is me sitting on the glacier <laughs> this is what a glacier looks like with k2 in the background 
So a glacier looks nothing like a glacier. It's just a pile of rocks. <laughs> because all the rocks stay on the surface, of course. The ice can ablate uh, and melt and whatever, you know, each year. And it leaves all of these rocks on the surface. It's, it's like a moonscape trekking the way up uh, this glacier to uh, uh, towards K2. And it's very high, of course. We, we get up to 19,000 foot, I think. So you're beginning to run out of oxygen as well. It's, it's getting a very hard going. You know, anything above 10,000 foot in an aircraft is considered dangerous to life, which is why you need the uh, emergency oxygen if you're flying in an airliner. Uh, and we're double that. We're, we're up at 19,000 foot. Um, and this is K2. If I just expand the size of that. So again, this is looking up the glacier which is just covered in rocks. And it's covered in fissures as well. It's not as if it's smooth going. You're going up and down because we've got all these big fissures. You can probably see this down the bottom here is a big fissure that you've got to get around. Running up to K2. And this is the reason why I was interested in K2, because K2 is a pyramid. Mm -hmm. And more than that, it's a copy of the Great Pyramid. And that was rather interesting because it's up in the most inaccessible place on Earth, virtually. Um, but the map I got back from the Chinese was this one. Let's expand the size a little bit. So on the left, We have K2. On the right, we have the Great Pyramid looking from above in plan view. <clears throat> and so K2 is a square-based pyramid aligned with the cardinal points. So you can see that the ridges are marked southeast, northwest, southwest, northeast. Um, so it's a pyramid that's aligned with the cardinal points. It's pure white just as the Great Pyramid would have been because it was covered with uh, Chura limestone. And uh, K2 is above the uh, snow line, so it's always covered in snow. So they're both um, pure white. Um, and at the bottom, you'll see there is a causeway that comes out from the base of K2 at an angle of 14 degrees, which is exactly what we see at Giza, where the uh, causeway comes out of the bottom of the Great Pyramid at 14 degrees. They are copies of each other. And the obvious thing you might say is that the Great Pyramid is a copy of K2. But that still means that, I mean, yeah. why, you might say? Yeah, um, yeah why? That, why? <laughs> That's my big question, Ralph, why? <laughs> Uh, but it still means that someone must have been up there in order to survey uh, K2, understand its layout, and then copy that on the uh, Giza Plateau. And yet this is in the most inaccessible place possible. Now, um, Alexander the Great did go up here in, in his mad dash across the, the Western Himalaya for no good reason. And I write about this in my book, K2, Quest of the Gods. What on earth was, was um, Alexander the Great doing up here? 
Um, he had defeated Darius. At um, he had defeated him twice. Uh, once on the Mediterranean coast at Issus, and then he defeated them again in at uh, Persopolis, I think it was. And uh, then he chased Darius way up into modern uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, way up into the uh, Western Himalaya. And you've got to ask yourself, what on earth was he doing up there? Was he really chasing Darius III up there? Um, if you read the mythology of uh, Alexander, uh, he was interested in sacred mountains. And so he was chasing sacred mountains looking at every mountain he came across. And remember that Alexander the Great was pharaoh of Egypt, so he had been initiated into the uh, mysteries of Egypt. He became pharaoh when he uh, invaded Egypt, and uh, he went to the Siwa Oasis, where they crowned him as, as pharaoh of Egypt. So he was well initiated into the mysteries of ancient Egypt. And then he went on his mad dash across Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, dragging an entire army with him. So he had 30,000 uh, soldiers, plus all of the hangers-on, probably 60,000 people, running across the very barren lands of Afghanistan and nearly losing his entire army on a few occasions before he turned south and went to India. Um, and conquered conquered India. Uh, what on earth was he doing up here, looking for sacred mountains in the Himalaya? Uh, I do wonder if he was up here looking for something like this. So I don't know what they know about within Egypt, and obviously we don't know because the library of Alexandria was burnt down in the third uh, century AD. So all of this information went up in smoke. So we've got no idea what the Egypt really knew about this. But here we have a, a stunning similarity that defies coincidence, really, that we have two mountains, two pyramids that look almost identical. Um, thousands of kilometers apart, one way up in the most inaccessible place possible. Uh, because when when because uh, Alexander got to Skardu. That's where I first started the uh, walk, was at Skardu. Now, Alexander had got to Skardu because that's how it gets his name. Um, Skardu comes from Iskander, which was the name for Alexandria, uh, Alexander up in the uh, east. That's where it gets its name from. But to get to Skardu in those days was impossible. I mean, it was it literally, it was donkey only and walking only uh, up the most inaccessible um, of valleys to get up there. Um, it was bad enough going by car in the, in the 20, 20th century. Um, but some of his, not the whole army, of course, but some of his advanced guard managed to get up as far as Skardu, which is only three weeks walking away from K2. So, yeah, why would you want to highlight the position of K2. Um, don't know. The only, <clears throat> the only possible thing, and I don't know where this tradition comes from, uh, is the tradition of the, um, um, what do they call it? The Hall of Records. 
So a central library of knowledge that was supposed to have been buried somewhere on earth. Um, and nobody knows where that was, where that is. And uh, of course, if you were wanting to bury a hall of records, you wouldn't want it where it could be discovered accidentally, mm-hmm. you know, by someone digging a drainage ditch for a latrine or something. Uh, you would want it in a fairly remote location where it would not be discovered unless someone actually knew where to go to. Uh, so this would be a perfect place for that. Again, that's highly esoteric because we don't know, really know where this tradition of the Hall of Records came from. Uh, we don't know if it's in any way correct, although Josephus Flavius does allude to it with his story about the two pyramids, the two pillars that encoded the knowledge of uh, the world at the beginning of time. So he sort of alludes to it. Um, And who on earth could build a hall of records up in this uh, very inaccessible location? You would have to have a party of workers, you know, digging up near K2 at 20,000 foot above sea level, rarefied atmosphere, trying to because the obvious thing would be to have um, a chamber inside K2 in the same fashion there is there is a chamber inside the Great Pyramid. But that would be a huge undertaking um, just for burying something. And again, you would have to you would have to exclude anything to do with Neolithic. This is way beyond the uh, capabilities of anything to do with standard Neolithic culture. We've got here people who can measure the form and shape of the Earth. They know the um, the form and shape of the continents to make the chambers within the Great Pyramid. They know the um, latitude and longitude of uh, the Great Pyramid, which we know is built on the 30th parallel north. So we know that they could measure lines of latitude and longitude, but then they'd have to measure lines of latitude and longitude for K2 as well, so they could encode that within the pyramid. So they would have to know exactly where that mountain was. Then they would have to have the knowledge to um, and capability of being able to go up there and manufacture something. Um, so we're talking about level of technology that is at our level of technology now. This is 20th century, 21st century uh, technology and capability uh, in order to make this happen. Um, And we have another conundrum, conundrums upon conundrums, in that the distance and angle between the Great Pyramid and K2 is determined by pi. And you can't very easily change pi. So that distance and angle is determined mathematically. So the position of either the Great Pyramid or K2 is determined mathematically. So what comes first, chicken or egg? So if you're measuring from K2, your position Uh, your length and your angle has to exactly hit the side of the Nile. 
Oh, which is difficult. You know, I suppose you could say the Great Pyramid could have been built anywhere, but it's, it's very nicely sitting on the 30 degree parallel north, right next to the Nile, which is, you know, like a good base position. So the alternative is you build the Great Pyramid and then you measure length and angle, and then you have to make K2 where you find K2 which means that K2 must be man-made. That was my next question. I would, <laughs> I would love to see a Dan Brown-style blockbuster created on this theory. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and you've got to explain, how do you make a mountain up in the Himalayas? Yeah. Well, I mean, this has precedent within ancient history because if you read the um, the... Greek mysteries of Bacchus, Dionysus. Dionysus specifically says that he went up into the Himalaya with the Amazons to cut mountains. And the Amazons did this with ivy wands. Well, it's not exactly explained how you cut stone with ivy, but they were cutting mountains with ivy wands up in the Himalaya. And that's part of ancient Greek history, you know, and it sort of ties in, you know, it's been dismissed, of course, as complete mythology because it doesn't make any sense unless you know that, well, perhaps K2 might be man-made, as it were. So you say man-made, meaning the structure, the stone was already there, but then it was carved out to to yeah. be um, a yeah. replica. Yeah, carved out from whatever it looked like before, carved to make it into a pyramid shape that is aligned with the cardinal wow. points. So are, 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 you pro, wow. are you proposing that the pyramid was built first? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's difficult to do it the other way around. You yeah. see, if you say they found K2, yeah. which happened to be pyramidal, and then you measure a pi-based yeah. uh, distance and angle from K2, how do you end up with the Great Pyramid exactly on the 30th parallel north, right next to the Nile? Um, that's a pretty lucky sort of find. Unless, of course, I suppose the alternative you could say was that um, they moved the position of the Nile until it fitted the right position to be next to the Great Pyramid, which is, again, it's not, it's not out of... Okay, it's, it's out of this world, but it's within... Um, mythology. There was a great mythology within Masonic le legend that the Nile was man-made as well. Because the Nile used to flow in the wrong direction. It used to flow south into the um, African Rift Valley. And over time, Lake Victoria has changed its outlet and now flows north into uh, the Nile and into the Mediterranean. So the actual course of the Nile has been changed. And, of course, that was probably natural, but within Masonic uh, uh, law, it was said that this was done artificially in order to create the Egyptian culture, because you cannot have Egyptian culture without the Nile. Without the Nile and the Nile floods, there is nothing in Egypt. It's just barren desert. It's part of the Sahara Desert. So if you wanted to build a civilization there, you've got to build a river that will go through it. 
So again, we're all stuck in the realms of esoterica here. But mm -hmm. if you had, if you could imagine a visitation from um, an alien species that came to Earth and did a little bit of um, tinkering, you might say, you know, finding um, Homo erectus or whatever, finding very primitive uh, ape men and creating civilization out of those packs of ape men and then wanting to promote them into a civilization. Well, how do you do that? Well, you give them a task to do. And that task is building a pyramid, because in order to build a pyramid, you need all of the structures for a civilization in your pyramid building project, because you need the aristocracy, you need the king, you need the priesthood. Um, you need the artisans, you need the architect, you need the mathematics, you need the boats, because all, all of these stones came from, you know, south down in Thebes. So you need the um, boat builders, you need the sailors, um, you need the agriculture, because you've got to feed this enormous great uh, number of people. Because ancient civilizations, you had 90% of people involved in agriculture. So there was no spare people left over uh, for doing any grand projects. So now you've got to reduce that down so that agriculture only takes, what, you know, a maximum of 50% of the population, which leaves your other 50% available for creating the rest of civilization and this big building project. So all of the things you require to make this big temple are the things you will require to sustain a civilization. And the same with Stonehenge, and the same with Avery. You can sustain and create civilizations in that part of the world, because there's no point doing this just in Egypt, because you, know, you get one big earthquake or one big meteor, and bang, your, your whole civilization is just gone. So you've got to do this in multiple locations around the Earth, because one particular civilization that you've just created may well expire. And I'm sure many of them did. But if you create 20 of them, well, maybe hopefully one of them might actually survive. And that appears to be what has happened because you find this megalithic era spread all the way around the world. You get it in you know, Central America. Um, you, you get megaliths out in places like um, uh, Korea and to, uh, Vietnam, I think Vietnam's got it. Uh, we have these um, three stones, uh, dolmens we call them, big three stones with a capstone on the, on the top, very typical of southern Britain. Well, you find those out in Vietnam as well. Is it Vietnam or Korea? No, it might be Korea. Uh, exactly the same. They look exactly the same as a British dolmen, but the other, other side around the world. Um, so we have this megalithic era in virtually every continent, except for Australia, I think. We really don't find anything in Australia. But apart there's, from there's, that... There's a pyramid in Australia. Yeah, but it's not megalithic, is it? I think it's three times as big as Giza, isn't it? In, well, in Northern, in Northern Territory. Is, is that natural or is that specifically man-made? I'll have to do a bit more research. I mean, there's a very famous one uh, in Queensland, but that was built in the uh, 19th century. Um, uh, 19th Ralph, century, would, yeah. would Machu Picchu 
would Machu Picchu be considered among that I, as well? Is that a completely different thing? I don't think it's terribly megalithic. But, you know, yeah. Cusco and places like that with those huge megalithic walls, yes, of course, that's megalithic era because they are mm. so difficult to manufacture. And then you've got, is, is it Cusco where the, the, the quarry is across the valley? So you've got to bring the stones down from the valley and then up the other side of the valley before you can make the construction. There's all of those very, very mm. difficult uh, to construct megaliths around South America and Central America. Um, you see a lot of the um, pyramids in Central America are not megalithic. You can make those just with men. They're not megalithic. The only one that you might consider in that region to be megalithic would be Teotihuacan. It's not megalithic, but it's on a megalithic scale. It's mostly made of like mud brick with an enormous layer of plaster over the top of it, which must have been very, very difficult to manufacture. Uh, when they said that there's plaster on it, I was sort of imagining, you know, six inches of plaster or something to, you know, stop the rain getting at the mud bricks. When I went there, the plaster is a meter thick. It's a yard thick. I mean, it's just huge. Um, so there is the possibility that Teotihuacan in Mexico could be considered megalithic of this era. But there are certainly loads in, in South America that are most definitely mm. megalithic. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Australian pyramid then we've got the, definitely is not megalithic. It's 30, it's, it's 30 meters in right. height in Queensland, yeah. But there are alternative theories about potentially... Yeah, know, that, that was made in the 20th century, I think. Someone, someone made it as, as a bit of fun. Um, <clears throat> um, but, I mean, there's, there's, there's the great megaliths at... Um, Baalbek, you know, Jerusalem. Uh, the Temple of Jerusalem is built upon megaliths. Okay, the Temple of Jerusalem would have been much later, um, but the actual platform it sits on is hugely megalithic. Same at Baalbek. The temple that sits on the top is Roman, but the platform it sits on is hugely megalithic with the largest stones uh, used anywhere in the world. 1,200 tons, 1,400 tons. So, and, and then, of course, Stonehenge and Avebury. Okay, they're, they're smaller. They're still megalithic. I mean, we're still talking 100 tons. But the information that's encoded within Avebury and um, Stonehenge is definitely of that era because it's, <clears throat> it's information that you could not get in that era. You know, Avebury with the form and shape of the earth, and then it gives the latitude of, Stonehenge at 52 North. And then the Southern Circle, which we didn't talk about much, um, has a, a, a sort of crescent shape in it. And I thought, well, what on earth is this crescent shape? Well, if the Northern Circle gives the line of latitude, then the Southern uh, Circle must also be a line of latitude. Well, uh, so it gives um, 29 stones. 2 times 29 is 58, so it must be on the 58 parallel south. And so if you look at 58 parallel south, um, you come across the South Sandwich Islands. Now, I haven't got this as a, an image, but let's look. Let's see if I can get an image. 
Yes. Uh, so here's a few images. So if I do a screen share with these, so screen share this image. Um, okay, so now we're looking at the seabed because this is um, most of this is under the sea, but the islands poke out the top. On the top left of this, you'll see uh, South Georgia, which is a British island down in the South Atlantic. And then on the right, you'll see this great ring, this uh, crescent shape of islands stuck on the front of this mm, tectonic plate. There's a uh, there's a tectonic plate that looks like a finger that comes out of the bottom of South America. And the end of that finger forms a chain of islands. And you can see the islands there. And there's a crescent shape of these islands. Let's zoom in a little bit. Oh. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, I've, I've put <laughs> yeah, I've put Avebury on it. <laughs> so there, there it is without Avebury. So there's the chain of islands. Uh, you can see the seabed and the islands poking out the top. Now, that central island is on the 58-degree parallel south. Exactly. The 58 parallel runs through the center of that island. And yet that crescent shape looks like the um, uh, shape that's inside um, the southern circle at Avebury. And it's got 29 stones around it. 29 stones times two is 58, 58 parallel. Um, so again, if that's if my estimation of that is correct, we're talking about information and technology that should not be available in that era. Um, going to the South Atlantic, measuring those particular islands, which we did not do until the 19th century sort of thing. Uh, maybe the 18th century, just about we got down there. Um, but you can see the amount of technology you require to get that information. Not available during the um, megalithic era. So you're talking again, uh, an esoteric explanation. It has to be an intervention from elsewhere or a previous technical civilization. Can't be anything else. Um, but that doesn't sit well with traditional archaeology and history. <clears throat> uh -uh. So they won't entertain such things even though 90%, maybe 95% of scientists will agree that there is intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. Because it's a mathematical almost probability, there has to be, there's so many stars and so many planets out there, that there has to be uh, intelligent life somewhere else in the universe or even in our galaxy. And so the only question becomes, has that intelligent life ever visited the Earth? That's the only question you need to answer. And, of course, there is no definitive answer to that question. Um, but what would you do if you were a technical civilization and you visited a primitive planet? Um, would you have a non-interference policy? like we do going to tribes in the Amazon. So if we meet uh, an Amazon tribe, 
We try not to interfere with their development. Although if they were starving and they were all going to be dead in 10 years' time, I'm sure we would probably assist them and do a little bit of intervention. And that's the whole basis of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Because again, from Masonic um, law, 2001, A Space Odyssey was the creation of, of, of our civilization. So this is a film which is, dare I say, ancient. It shows how old I am now. It was made in 1968. Um, and yet the imagery, the graphics are better than you'll see in any modern film because they they actually made it with models. <clears throat> they had no CGI in those days. So it was all done with models and very, very expertly done with models. So that I was saw there was a very good book on this that was made about the, uh, the, the making of the film. And some of the images took four seconds per frame to actually image. And if you imagine that most films run at 50 frames per second, you can see how long it took to make some of the scenes in that film. Absolutely wonderfully done. But the whole basis of this film is that early man, and they don't have, hom they don't have uh, Homo erectus, they've got hominids, basically. They've got apes. Um, and the apes are starving, and, and they're going to expire. They're going to die. And so the intervention by an alien species is to help them survive. And so they put an artifact on Earth which teaches them how to survive. It teaches them how to kill, how to eat meat, because they were vegetarians and they needed more protein. Um, and then in a leap of, uh, well, within 30 seconds in the film, it leaps, you know, 10,000 years, and you end up in the space age. And this is where we were going. This is why I like my era more than our era. My era was looking forward to going to the moon, going to the planets, going to the stars. Everything was looking forward. The current generation looking backwards, you know, oh, life is terrible. We've got to pull down all the statues. Oh, you know, um, it's a very fearful, backward-looking generation we've bred. But that wasn't 1968. 1968, we were looking forwards. And they had 2001 as being going to Jupiter or going to Saturn was the original book. That's how advanced they thought we would be in 2001. Oh, it's 20 years ago now. And we're nowhere near <laughs> Jupiter. We've not even got back to the moon yet. Um, but in 1968, um, when Stanley Kubrick was making this film, they were trying to image the moon having never been there because the first moon landing wasn't until 69. So they were very worried that they might get it wrong because they had to make a stage set that looked like the moon, which they did. Hence, we get a lot of um, conspiracy theories to go with it. But they made this uh, set because the idea was that these visitors to Earth had not only left a monolith on the Earth, but they had left one on the moon as well. The idea being that it would only be discovered when you have a technological spacefaring civilization. And as soon as you go to the moon, and as soon as you map the moon, this thing was stood out like a sore thumb because it had a big magnetic anomaly around it. 
And so they found it, they uncovered it and found a monolith. And then the monolith phoned home and said, hey, look, we've got a technological species over here. Um, so this was the scenario of the um, God, because effectively the aliens are God. That's where the concept of God comes from, the God from the heavens above. But uh, God as being the um, divine watchmaker. Um, so a God that's not concerned about what happens to his creation. They make the intervention, they make the civilization, and then they bugger off and say, bye, we'll see you in 26,000 years, based mm. on the procession of the equinox. So 13,000 years or 20, 26,000 years. We'll see you in 13,000 years, and we'll come back and say hello. But until then, you're on your own, chum. We're off. Um, hence the non-interference policy. And so there's no direct artifact or direct information that would point towards this happening. All you get is the megaliths. And from the megaliths, you've got to decide whether this, this happened or not, because the information, the evidence is, is equivocal. We don't know. Um, but I think it's highly likely because all of this is way outside the capabilities of ancient man uh, yeah. in the Neolithic era. Um, so I think Ralph, that's what happened. Yep, yeah, go ahead. I was having a quick question. Do you think if today people wanted to build a replica of the Great Pyramid that they would be able to easily with the technology that we have today? Yes, yes and no. Yes, of course we can build it. Will it be easy? No, it would not be easy. Um, it, it was a huge project. Um, and it would be using all of our current high technology that we have. Um, I mean, for instance, the stones they were using at Baalbek, well, even at Stonehenge, uh, sorry, even at um, Giza, there are some of the platform stones that are a thousand tons. Now, we've only started recently actually lifting stones of that nature. So when I was writing this book, the largest lift we'd ever done in Britain, and I think in Europe, was the lid to one of our nuclear power stations. And that weighed a 1,000 tons. And to do that, we had to bring in three of the largest cranes in the whole of Europe to do that lift. That's how difficult it was. And yet, at Baalbek, they were using hundreds of those stones. Same at, at mm -hmm. Giza, they were using hundreds of those stones in order to make the platform for the second pyramid. Nowadays, we can do 1,000-ton lifts with a single crane. But it's a huge, great piece of equipment, you know. We're not using log rollers, <laughs> you know, to, to move a stone of that size. Um, so, yeah, of course, we could do it nowadays, but it would be a hell of an undertaking. Uh, and we simply wouldn't do it that way. You know, we, we would use concrete or something of that nature. Um, but these stones are not concrete. There's this idea gone around that, you know, the casing stones for the Great Pyramid are concrete, but they're not. They've got strata within them. They've got uh, fossils within them. And we know where they came from. We've got the, the quarry that they came from, the Tura limestone quarry. And you can see where they've been cut out of the bedrock. So, yeah, they're, they're not made with um, uh, a concrete mix. 
Um, and the accuracy that they were using, I mean, th these were perfect. They, they weren't ads mm -hmm. uh, cut, you know, an ads looks like, a, looks like an axe. These were saw cut stones to perfectly fit one upon the other. Um, and the granite is especially very, very, very difficult to cut to that degree of accuracy. Um, so it would be a very, very difficult project. Um, it would be a government major undertaking, and it would probably take us it would probably take us a hundred years, something of that nature, unless you threw the whole of the nation into building this one project. Um, and we certainly wouldn't be doing it with uh, Bronze Age materials, that's for sure. So, yeah, they're very, very yeah. difficult to explain, the pyramids, with the Bronze Age technology yeah. that they were supposed to have had, um, especially as we see tube drilling into granite. You cannot tube drill granite with bronze. I mean, they, they've tried this, and the results are just not the same, and they don't have the rate that you would require in order to do the drilling. And you don't end up with the um, evidence on the side of the tube drill that you get from the ones that we actually have in Egypt. They have a spiral that goes down, which indicates it was cut with a machine. Um, and we, we get many cuts that, that show that they were doing enormous great saw cuts, some of them with circular saws, some of them with straight, straight saws. Um, technology so this, that they... this, so, so yeah. that's what I was going to say. So this is where some of the like technology, this whole idea of an uh, advanced technology comes from to be able to make these cuts and to 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 move to move the stones, etc. Is that correct? Yeah, and and even yeah. you know things as simple as as the jars and jugs they were making, as I was saying before. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one that was investigated recently, it was done on the um, Uncharted X channel. Um, there's a guy there, Ben, uh, with a surname I can't pronounce, um, who has, has done a, a very good video on these jars and they're just incredibly accurate in their design and manufacture to a degree that you would not have to do. Even if you had the technology, you wouldn't bother doing it. I mean, today we don't make jars and jugs to that, to a, like a 10th of a hair width in, in accuracy. I mean, you, you just don't make vases and jars to that degree of accuracy because you don't need to. The only reason for doing so is if it was dead easy for you to do, i.e. you had the technology in order to be able to do that without blinking an eyelid and thinking it unusual. But, you know, you've got this vase, which is symmetrical to, um, I think, five microns. Um, no, uh, not five microns, five thou of an inch, mm. which anyone who has done mechanical engineering, five thou is very, very fine indeed. But symmetrical um, about its axis. So a vase has an axis through the top of the vase, of course. So the sides of the vase are accurate to five thou, which means it must have been turned on a lathe. It couldn't have been done any other way. The top and bottom of it are perfectly level to within five thou. And there's no good reason why a, a vase should be to that degree of accuracy. You don't need the top to be 
parallel to the base within five thou. Uh, and as I say, the handles were within like about two thou of each other. Their position on the side of, of the vase, so that the distance between the base of the vase and the, the top of the handle. Absolutely no good reason why that should be so. And yet that's the degree of technology uh, that they were using. In the pre-dynastic era, these are not dynastic vases. These are not pottery vases. This is in the pre-pottery era when the vases were all made of stone. And they're just carved out of granite. And granite is a very difficult um, uh, medium to be cutting, even with modern technology, because granite is made up of different crystals of different hardness and different properties. So if you're turning it on a lathe, you can go from softer to harder and you can break the crystal with your cutting tool. Uh, well, that, that makes it very difficult because you're going you're to end up with pitting all around the circumference of your vase if you're not careful. And yet these vases are perfectly polished. Um, so yeah, there's a level of technology which has been known about for some time. This has been known about since the days of Flinders Petrie. You know, Flinders Petrie um, did a survey of all of this back in the uh, 19th century. He's 1880s, and you can see all of, a lot of this information even back in his books uh, about the Giza Plateau and the rest of Egypt. That he was astounded with the degree of. Uh, technology and cutting of stone that they had in that era. Um, but of course, it was entertained. This is why I sort of like the Victorian era better than our era. In the Victorian era, people entertained this and said, yeah, well, this, this could be a possibility. Look, they had high technology back there um, in Egypt. But in the modern sort of academia, they just dismiss it out of hand and try and gloss over it or explain it away or cover it up as if it never happened. Mm. So you don't get Egyptologists talking about tube drill cutting and circular saw cutting. They just forget about it. I mean, if you look at complete pyramids, which I've got here. <clears throat> very, very jarring information. It's a really good book. Um, so it's Mark Lerner. And why does that come out backwards? Anyway, it does. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's a complete premise. It's a very, very good book. Um, but <clears throat> all the way through it, he uses meters. So although they, the values they come out with for the pyramids are two pi to the nearest four centimeters for the whole of the Great Pyramid, um, it doesn't mention it. So all of that is glossed over. You would not know that these pyramids are mathematical if you read the complete pyramids because they gloss over it. They don't tell you about it, which is odd. It's, it's a dereliction of duty, dare I say. Yeah. <clears throat> that information is obvious. Even if you don't believe it, you should point it out and leave it up to the reader to decide whether they believe it or not. But just to omit it, to use the wrong units of measurement, so you're using meters instead of cubits, and so people cannot see the obvious linkage, uh, is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and yet that's what they do. So you've got to go to my books, and, and really my books, because I think I'm the first person who's gone so deep into this 
uh, with all of the measurements of the pyramids and the links between uh, Egyptian metrology and the imperial measurement system. Um, <clears throat> you'll only get that in my books. So you, you've got to look at Thoth Architect of the Universe to get that one. In wild, compelling. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing this information, this knowledge, and I'm amazed as to where your research ended up, particularly with the the, the K2 um, theory. I've got so many mm. questions still, Ralph, but I feel like this will go five hours <laughs> if I was to ask my questions. Um, but I want to um, address one thing, which we, we received a few questions about um, from your first episode as well. I think you mentioned that you were yourself um, a Freemason and um, et cetera. And you had a relationship with Freemasonry. And obviously modern day truth seekers and this conspiracy realm, the moment Freemasonry comes involved, there's, you know, skepticism that, that comes along with that. So I just wanted to give you the chance to address that and, and clear anything around that or your thoughts on, on those ideas. Yeah, um, Freemasonry has got a bad rap recently because I suppose, like any secret society, people who are not in the secret society always think um, there is something uh, untoward about it. Um, but no, it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, if you look at the history of Masonry from the Knights Templar all the way through to Freemasonry, uh, it's the Templars and the Freemasons who were at the heart of the Reformation and the Enlightenment era. Because these are the people who, they were like Gnostics. They wanted, the whole idea of Freemasonry is the seven sciences, that you can study and question the seven sciences. That's the very heart of, of Freemasonry. And so Freemasons were always asking the questions that the Catholic Church would not let you ask. Um, because within Freemasonry, there is no one religion. There is only one all-powerful God. And if anyone wonders how I can be a Freemason and an atheist, the question is, what do you mean by God? So Freemasons only believe in a uh, superior being. And of course, if you believe in an alien, that is a superior being. So your definition of God uh, becomes rather fluid. And that was the whole point of masonry. This is why the Catholic Church didn't like masonry, um, because it was much more uh, ecumenical, do you call it? Yes, it, it, it would cover all religions. Uh, you can join masonry as any religion, as a Catholic, a Jew, a Muslim, a Protestant. Um, everyone uh, is in, uh, invited into uh, Freemasonry. And so when we came to the Reformation, it was these free thinkers that were behind the Reformation. And it was the Reformation that gave us the Enlightenment, the ability to push back against Catholic dogma. And it was from the Enlightenment that we got the Industrial Revolution. So, and it's so it's no surprise that, you know, Grand Lodge in London came out in 1717, um, just after the uh, Reformation era uh, and the Enlightenment. And because of that, everything you see around you 
every single piece of technology that you see around you is here because of the Reformation, because of the Enlightenment era, because of people like Freemasons who would question the Catholic Church um, and stand up against their dogma. So Freemasonry has been a force for good within uh, modern civilization by freeing up our um, freeing us from the suffocating uh, um, uh, control of the Catholic Church. Um, so yeah, it's it's actually a force for good in the world, and it's it's not as powerful as it used to be because it used to be fairly powerful when people used to go to church every Sunday. So they'd go to church on the Sunday and they'd maybe go to lodge on the Wednesday. Um, and it was very much the same sort of, uh, meeting that you would go to, but people are not used to that anymore because they don't go to church. And therefore the thought of going to a sort of pseudo church, you know, on the Wednesday or the Tuesday, instead of going to, uh, um, instead of going to church, people don't do it anymore. So Freemasonry is dying within Britain. I think it's stronger in America, but in Britain, it's really, really dying. Um, so within our lodge, the average age in our lodge is 80 years old. So our lodge is not going to last more than 10 years um, just because, you know, that's they're all going to die off. We don't have any youngsters coming through. Um, so it's, it's uh, an organization that's lost its appeal, uh, but it's a very ancient, um, because I think I talked about this in the previous one, that Jesus was a Freemason. Did I talk yeah. about mm -hmm. this? Yeah, yeah, uh, you talked about you, you proposed like tecton, tecton, yeah. He was a tecton, yeah. so he was in the, a fiero tecton, which was the Freemason. So it's it's a an organization that goes back through the millennia, through Judaism, through the United Monarchy, back into Egypt, and it's supposed to be based on the, the original pyramid builders, of course. Um, they were the original architects with the pyramid builders. So it's supposed to be built upon that era. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers all Definitely. of the questions you are looking for. No, I appreciate your answer. And, you know, I appreciate people's general idea being challenged um, as well. And again, it's up to our audience to, I guess, come up with yeah, their ideas. Yeah, it's up to them. Sure. But, you know, if, if you look at it, the... Um, the thought that Freemasonry controls the world is not really valid. Um, it's had a lot of input in the world, as every organization does. Every organization wants to have their uh, views put forward within politics and religion. And so obviously they put forward theirs. But the thought that Freemasonry controls the world is stretching things a little bit. Um, but their campaign for the Reformation was obviously successful. But it was a hard-fought thing. Um, you know, it didn't come for free. It wasn't guaranteed that the Reformation would actually succeed. You know, it ended up with the Thirty Years' War was caused by the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War in, in mostly in Germany. And they say that um, in Germany, half the population died during the Thirty Years' War. That's how close a run thing it was between the forces of the Protestant Church and the Catholic Church. 
So there was there was no guarantee that this um, little exercise would actually come to fruition. But uh, personally, personally, I'm glad it did. You know, we ended up with the Protestant churches and managed to throw off the shackles of of the Catholic Church. What can I say? This has been an absolutely epic episode. Um, it's such a pleasure to host you every time you come back to our platform. We appreciate it. Um, anything that you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of pointing them to your work and how they can best support you and your, your future endeavors? Yeah, so the books are Foth Architect of the Universe and K2 Quest of the Gods on Amazon uh, because that's where most of them are. Try and get the 2017 or later editions. There are some old editions floating around, and there are some at exorbitant prices. I don't know why. Mine are not that expensive. I think mine are only about seven or eight dollars or something. They're fairly cheap. I think ten dollars for the printed version, and about four dollars for the um, uh, ebooks. Um, so those are the books. The um, Facebook site is probably the most active. That's uh, Ralph.ellis.144. If you type that in for Facebook, you'll find me. That's fairly active. I've got a lot of uh, posts on that, all very interesting. Um, and what else do we have? Yeah, I do have these on a YouTube channel. So my YouTube is uh, just Ralph Ellis. Um, and you search for a red and gold phoenix as being the thumbnail. And those are my uh, videos. So I've got a few of those up. So yeah, come to Facebook and join the conversation. It's fairly active. I normally get a lot of comments on my uh, Facebook site. Amazing. And yeah, just to say, you know, I hope people are intrigued by the books. You know, there's a lot of good new information, as as you've probably seen from this talk, that you won't find anywhere else. And it's all from original texts and from original measurements, you know. So you can believe it or not believe it, but it's all very thought-provoking uh, material, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's why we love having you on, Ralph. You know, even our our Jesus and the Biblical Stories episode was one of our most popular ones. And uh, just, you know, again, the decades of research and how you present your material, just always enjoy having a conversation. And we shoot for two hours and ends up getting closer to three hours uh, <laughs> uh, as usual. So thank you again for coming on. Yeah, My pleasure. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share that confusion. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.